You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. Well, hello, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Review and Preview. I'm your host, Tom Scavetta, here on Facebook Live. Feel free to like and subscribe to our show, our Facebook page at Review and Preview Sports. Give us a follow on Instagram at Review and Preview. No James or Kyle tonight, but shout out to Gabe Flayton, who is backstage. He will be joining us very, very soon. Uh, Well, later on in the show, I should say. Uh, Alec Wall of JDF Sports. He is a podcast host there host of the Transfer Portal podcast with Fonz DeFalco on Saturday mornings and host of In the Pen, which actually just aired tonight, Wednesday at 5.30. Make sure to go check that out. Alec Walt will be joining the show at 7.15 p.m. to talk about some MLB playoff news. There uh, the banner is, as you can see it. Thank you one and all for joining and looking forward to this show. Remember also to follow the audio version of our podcast on anchor.fm slash review and preview thank you all very much once again so these first 15 minutes let's recap some mlb uh playoff matchups that occurred earlier this postseason last week we left off the rays and the yankees were up to game three so in that game the rays they took a two to one series lead and this was not a you know this was a valiant effort by the yankees but remember the rays were down early in this series they ended up winning three to two Masahiro Tanaka did not look good for the Yankees in this series against Tampa Bay. It was very tough to watch, um, you know, just as a New York sports fan, although I'm a Mets fan, you know, I was pulling for the Yankees in this series. It would have been nice despite my World Series pick. As all of you know, I picked the Rays and the Dodgers, and that that seems to be going pretty strong right now. Um, you know, I've got to tell you, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed with what Tampa Bay has done on the mound this year and through their batting order. Uh, Charlie Morton was fantastic with his off-speed pitches tonight. Uh, the other night. Kevin Kiermeyer had a great series, had a home run and three RBIs in Game 3. Michael Perez, really good young talent. And then, of course, Randy Arozarena went three for four with a home run in Game 3. Now, Tampa going up 2-1. to one. Yankees backs are against the wall. Game 4, they went 5-1. to one. Jordan Montgomery was on the mound, but this was more of a, a bullpen type of game. Chad Green... Did a fantastic two innings. Zach Britton and um, Araldis Chapman did a really, really fine job uh, shutting the door on the Tampa Bay Rays. You know, I was really happy to see the Yankees push it to a game five because, you know, history shows the Yankees are pretty darn good in elimination games, um, to say the least. And then it was just crazy because in game four, Yarbaugh's on the mound late. Glaber Torres hit a two-run bomb, so that really propelled the Yankees to you know be able to win in this game. And four Yankees collected two hits. Again, very impressive win for the Yankees. Luke Voigt, really good bat all season long. You know, he's been fantastic. One of the few guys that did not get hurt this year for the New York Yankees. Need I remind you that? Um, and then game five. This is an elimination game. Uh it's Anderson on the mound against Cole for the Yankees. Garrett Cole, the guy that the Yankees threw out their big bucks for in the offseason to, you know, th- this was the guy who was regarded the 
only difference between them and Houston last year in the playoffs. And quite frankly, it didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. Early on in this game, the Yankees had a one nothing lead in the fifth inning. Judge had the solo home run. And then Austin Meadows hits a home run off Garrett Cole in the fifth inning. Cole had nine strikeouts in this game, but he didn't last very long. I got to say, I'm not going to say I was disappointed in Garrett Cole this year for the Yankees, but he didn't live up to the hype. In other words, he was overhyped. Um, Glass now only went two and a third. He, I believe he came out of the bullpen. Uh, or no, he actually he did start this game. Anderson uh, came out of the bullpen. Sorry there, folks. Um, and then Araldis Chapman blows the save. This was a really weird game because the Yankees are notorious for having that type of bullpen that is just really good, uh, unable to hit. But we saw that Tampa Bay's bullpen came up with the upper hand, Fairbanks and Diego Castillo, who's had a phenomenal playoffs. Tampa Bay winning game five. Uh, Brasso with the pinch hit home run for the Rays in the eighth inning. He went two for two as a pinch hitter, actually. Um, and then the Rays reached their first ALCS since 2008, where they beat the Boston Red Sox in seven games. I was really disappointed with Aaron Judge in this series, folks. He only hit 133. You know, I'm not the biggest numbers guy out there, but I will bring that up because it is important to talk about. And then Tanaka, LeMahieu, and Paxton. These three men will all be free agents heading into the offseason in 2021. It's going to be very difficult for the Yankees to bring DJ LeMahieu back. I may sprinkle that in with Alec Walt later when he comes on at 7.15, but you know, right now I'm not so certain or confident that the Yankees will be able to keep those three intact. Uh, Paxton, I'm not sure they'll be able to keep. Tanaka's getting up there now. He's over 30 years old. Um then you look at a guy like DJ LeMahieu, who is in his early 30s as well. So realistically, how long will he be uh, you know, a factor for this Yankees franchise? Overall, disappointment for the Yankees going out early. And Brian Cashman apologizing to the fans. Uh, you know, Definitely tough to swallow if you're a Yankees fan. All right. So the number two seed, the Oakland A's, took on the number six Houston Astros. This was a series that... Uh, the A's, they really struggled out of the gate. They were able to salvage game three, but then in game four, Houston just blew them up, winning 11-6. The A's led 3-0 in this game, actually, in the fourth, but then the Astros would tally five runs off of Montes, uh, who gave up five runs. Not a good pitcher for Houston at all. Brantley and Correa both going deep. He's been a really good bat. Uh, both of them having really good bats for Houston in these playoffs. Uh, Brantley in this game actually had two home runs uh, and Correa had five RBIs. That's unacceptable. If you're the A's Altuve with a home run as well, Houston between Altuve, Correa, Bregman, Springer, Brantley, those five right there. That's a very tough team to manage to beat. And I was very impressed overall with the Houston Astros and their performance moving on to the ALCS for the second straight year. Um, and now we look ahead to the National League Divisional uh, divisional Series, the Dodgers and the Padres. Dodgers sweep the Padres, winning uh, 3-0 in the series. And then in Game 2, the Dodgers won 6-5. I was Now, I'm going to pinpoint this game because I was really impressed with uh, Clayton Kershaw. He gave up two home runs, but he was still able to go six innings strong. Um, 
And Andy Hopper asks, who do I have winning it all? As I mentioned to you earlier on our episode of the Brew Party this month, I had uh, Tampa Bay beating the Dodgers, and I still stand true to that. Those two are in the final four, so I do think that's going to be the final result. Just really love what Tampa Bay has done this year, considering their bullpen. Like I said, guys, Fairbanks, Castillo, these are guys that the Yankees bats were unable to hit off of, and what makes you think Houston is? I know they, Altuve, Correa, Bregman, Springer, they're all fantastic uh, you know, young players, but at the end of the day, folks, I don't see another team sneaking in outside of Tampa Bay or L.A. I think a turning point last night in the Dodgers-Braves series was the Dodgers scoring seven runs late after being down 7 nothing, And now you see what they've done in the first inning tonight. Although the Dodgers are down 2 nothing in the series, the Dodgers will win this series, folks. I don't see Atlanta advancing. Andy adds, does Tampa Bay sweep the Astros? Well, I'll be honest with you, Andy. I don't know about a sweep, but I think maybe five games. I think that would be uh, you know, a relative acceptable answer. Strictly because um, I'm just not 100% certain that Tampa Bay is able to go for a sweep, considering they just coming off a tough five-game series against the New York Yankees. Definitely um, interesting factors heading into these playoffs. And uh, back to the Dodgers game, though, i got to tell you, Kenley Jansen has been very, very shaky out of the Dodgers' bullpen. Joe Kelly, in Game 2 of the National League Divisional Series, inherited a bases-loaded mess up by one run with two out, and Kelly was able to record the final out. Props to Joe Kelly cleaning up the mess by Jansen. Uh, We have not seen much of Jansen in this series because the Dodgers have not been on the upper hand in these first couple of games. Muncie and Seager have been great in these playoffs so far. Um, And for those of you just tuning in now, I'm going to pin this again. Alec Walt of JDF Sports will join the show at 7.15 p.m. Really looking forward to him joining us. And game three, the Dodgers won 12-3. Dustin May, a good young talent. I don't know if he's ready to be full-time in the rotation yet, but I think he's been great. Only pitched one inning, but... The Dodgers winning 12-3, putting the Padres to bed. The Padres had to use 11 pitchers in Game 3 against the Dodgers. So definitely a lot of moving parts. No pitcher went more than two innings, but a valiant effort by the San Diego Padres. A lot of people had them written off, and I'm just really happy to see them uh, you know, back in the playoffs. First time since 06, I want to say. And I know that as a Mets fan, when you've been out of the playoffs for so many years, um. It's just great to be back. That 2015 feeling for the Mets, I know how it felt. We were in the playoffs for nine years. We came so close the two years after, and we couldn't get in. So the fact that the Padres were able to get into these playoffs, great for them. I know the whole scheduling was off with 2020. Uh, You know, a lot of teams with COVID outbreaks. But um, let's move on. I just want to recap game three of the Braves and Marlins series before we get Alec up on here. Atlanta won 7-0. This is another team that has not seen the playoffs in years, 17 to be exact. I was 8 years old. That's how long ago that was. Um, And then the Braves won 7-0. A pitcher who's on the mound tonight for the Braves who gave up seven runs in the first inning was brilliant in Game 3 against the Marlins. And right, 
six scoreless, seven strikeouts. And Travis Darno, two-run double. Uh, Dansby Swanson's been fantastic, supplying offense. Sixth and Sanchez was iffy. This is a young Marlins team that will be back. And the Braves reached the NLCS for the first time since 2001. Uh, and with that being said, I'm going to quickly announce that I am the only person out of the three, uh, myself, James, and Kyle, that has our World Series pick still intact. I picked the Rays over the Dodgers. Kyle had the Yankees over the Dodgers, close, but no cigar. You can check out Kyle Russo on Buckets right now with uh, Justin Kearns, Gabo Larry, and Xavier Gaudet on JDF Sports as well if you want to multitask and watch multiple shows at once. Um, and then James had the Cardinals over the Rays. That did not last very long, but our guest is here backstage. I'm going to bring him on a couple of minutes early. And at this time, introducing Alec Walt of JDF Sports. Alec, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Hey, Tom, I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for welcoming me on the show. Of course, and I catched a few minutes of your show with Sam Plotkin in the pen that aired earlier tonight on 530. So a little double header here for you. I know you guys have been busy over at JDF, so make sure to give them a follow. And Andy, Cardinals fan. Um, man, before we even get into this, Alec, I've got to tell you, 11 runs in one inning. What is up with these playoffs this year? A real funky start to that game. Yeah, that was what we took. We were talking about this, you know, the Dodgers being down two nothing. They needed to find this was a must win for them. Every single game in the postseason is a must win. But when you're down two nothing, you know, you got to find a way to get runs on the uh, on the scoreboard early. And that's exactly what the Dodgers did. It started with Mookie Betts getting on base, Corey Seager knocking him in, 11 more coming in after that. But, you know, the Dodgers made it clear they needed, they wanted to get runs on the board early. And, you know, they scored 11 and broke a postseason record. They're off to a heck of a start here in game three. What is this? Records being broken, shattered tonight. But I'll be honest with you, and I know we're going to talk about this later on, but the Dodgers, I felt that this series – turned into their favorite last night when they scored those seven runs late. I still have the Dodgers winning this series, despite being down 2-0. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to talk about. I just think they're off to a great start. I'm looking forward to it. But I want to ask you, what do you make of these four teams left? Are you surprised by any team that's made it this far specifically? I'm not surprised with three of them. Really, the only one I'm surprised with is the Astros. They were the team that finished below 500 in the regular season. They were a team that had a lot of question marks in the rotation going up against three you know, pretty good teams potentially in that first round, being in the same region with the Twins, the Athletics, and the White Sox. But they came out on top. They've gotten some pretty solid pitching performances from guys like Framber Valdez. They've had Carlos Correa really step up and have some key hits for this team. Uh, they're struggling in this series right now. But um, when you look at the Rays, they were the best team in the American League. They expected to be a team contending for a World Series. That's exactly what they did uh, this season. The Dodgers have been the most complete team in the major leagues all season long. We expected them to compete for a World Series. And the Braves, they've been dealing with a lot of injuries, but they've still been very consistent in getting solid production from guys who are doing it really for the first time in their careers. So um, I expected three of them to be here. I did not expect the Astros to be here, but uh, that's really how I look at these four teams remaining in Major League Baseball. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree. With, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the Astros have surprised a lot of people this year, considering their subpar 500 record. Yeah, and an- another team too. Not that I'm so surprised by them, but I'm more surprised by the Yankees and their performance in this series. I know they've their rotation has been hit or miss really all year long. It hasn't been great, uh, but the Yankees just seemed like they couldn't crack the code against the Tampa Bay Rays. What do you accredit Tampa's success to? Uh, Tampa, they're a team that's very familiar with New York. Kevin Cash is one of the best managers in Major League Baseball. He's also a guy that matches up very well with a very solid bullpen. So he goes into that matchup with a lot of familiarity with matchups and whatnot, and he definitely uh, used that to his advantage. The Yankees are a team that's very reliant on the home run. They're not a team that does great uh, with runners in scoring position. They have a team with a boatload of power, but, you know, yes, the the Rays didn't really, they still didn't have as many hits, but still win games. The Rays are really good at finding ways. Uh, to win at the end, but uh, the Yankees are one. They're with Garrett Cole and without Garrett Cole, it's two complete different teams. And the Rays are very consistent across the board. Um, I predicted them to win Game One and lose the rest. They ended up going five, but um, you know, it's just their pitching depth outside of Garrett Cole wasn't great, and their offense was very reliant on home runs, and uh, really hurt them at the end of the day. A lot of good points. I think that's been an issue for them the last couple of years. They've yeah. been a home run or nothing. Rays play good game. defense too. That's yeah. You can't hit uh, it through them. <laughs> that's funny. It's funny because I'm a Mets fan and I live in Queens, but geographically, I'm actually closer to Yankee Stadium than City Field. Okay. I always like bringing that up. A little uh, fun fact there, but um, I want to talk to you about Giancarlo Stanton because this guy is probably, in my opinion, he's the most Jekyll and Hyde type of player on the Yankees. Six home runs and seven playoff games. What do you expect from him heading into next year, considering, you know, he's older now and his health has been a concern throughout his career? I feel like my expectations for him are the expectations I've had for him really going into the last couple seasons. It's when he's healthy, he's one of the best sluggers in in baseball. He has those stretches where he's unstoppable and he hits home run after home run, game after game, and then uh, something happens where he gets injured. So with Giancarlo Stanton, at the end of the day, he's still one of the premier sluggers in Major League Baseball, but there's no guarantee you get to see him through 162 games. So if he's healthy and on the field, he's one of the best hitters in the league, but you know, history tells me that there's no guarantee that's going to happen. I think it was last year. Then he played like nine games all year, something like that. Yeah, so. he just kept bouncing back and forth from the IL. It just, it just, it's, it's unfortunate. It's just he, he's a guy that you know we really want to see in this league. He's a, he's one of the premier hitters in this league. If he can stay healthy through 162, he has the chance to hit 50 or more home runs in a single season, especially in that ballpark. Oh my lord, I can only imagine. Uh, what he can do if he stays healthy for an entire season. He also has protect, a little bit of protection in the lineup. Um, they got they got some guys who could swing the bat. I mean, he's an absolute game changer when he's healthy, and um, we just haven't been able to see it through a whole season. So the expectation is it's he's hot when he's there, but he's not always there. And they're such a deep team, too. Looking at it, you have guys like Clint Frazier and Miguel and Duhar who don't even start. Yeah. Um, on this team. And Andy Hopper has a question for you, Alec. Are Judge and Stanton too big to play every day? Well, Stanton, it shouldn't be an issue because he's a DH. Um, Judge, I would say it's looking like it. Um, He does deal with some nagging injuries all the time. He, he, it's just, it's kind of unfortunate. He bounced back and forth from the IL as well. It just, 
for Stanton, I feel like he shouldn't have an issue playing every day if he only hits. And I really see that kind of be the, being the direction of where he goes. Judge, it's just tough because he's he is big. He, if he plays every day, it's just the wear and tear in the game of baseball. And he has an injury history. So um, Judge it might be leaning towards that direction. But Stanton shouldn't have ever, any issue if he DHs. It just, you know, he'll get hit by a pitch. And that's how he gets injured for a couple weeks. Or he'll take a foul ball off the leg and he'll be out for a couple weeks. It's just that kind of unfortunate injuries that happens with Stanton. But um, I don't think Stanton should have any issues if he can stay 162 at the DH position. That's some really good insight there. And last question on the Yankees. Obviously, Tampa sent them home. So now the Yankees are looking ahead into the offseason. What do you think is their biggest hole? Because obviously we know three big names are, um, I believe they're going to be free agents. DJ LeMahieu, Masahiro Tanaka, and James uh, James Paxton as well. So what are your expectations for them? I expect them to do – I think LeMahieu returns. I mean, he's just a, such a perfect fit with that team in that organization, in that market. Um, I think a lot makes sense. Um, Tanaka and Paxson, I don't really know if they return. They do have some young pitchers in the organization, but I hate to say it, um, I think Trevor Bowers in pinstripes next year. Um, he's a guy who's expressed interest in signing one-year deals. New York's a team that's looking for a co-ace behind Garrett Cole. That's one thing they really struggled with in the postseason this year was the fact that they couldn't, they didn't have much outside of Garrett Cole due to the injuries of Severino and some inconsistencies in the starting rotation outside of that. So I think the Yankees address it. They need to find a way to bring in that co-number two. And right now, Trevor Bowers right there for them to sign, and the Yankees – they have a lot of money, and they need that. They need that position. Last year, they proved they want. They needed that ace. They went out and got that ace. Well, there's another ace right there that you desperately need to fill out this rotation. So, I think if I'm the Yankees, I'm bringing back LeMahieu and doing whatever I can to get that true number two. Even though Bauer's not a number two, to go behind or with Garrett Cole in their rotation. And they may have some competition within their own town for Trevor Bauer now with Steve Cohen. Um, that's going to be very, very interesting. Um, and then Andy, a Cardinals fan again. Personally, I'm not a Yankees fan, Andy, but Luke Voigt, uh, you know, I'm definitely excited about him just playing for New York. He's definitely been a really good talent. And a lot of people have said the Mets got the better end of the stick with Pete Alonso. But overall, I think Luke Voigt, fantastic year. Didn't he lead the league in home runs and RBIs, something like that? So he led the league in home runs. I think RBIs went to. Abreu. Okay, Abreu. I know Tatis was up there too, but then I feel like he started to dip a little bit. Yeah, I feel feel like he had the same numbers for a couple weeks. He really (laughs) cooled down. But I know um, Abreu was an RBI. I think he averaged like one a game. He he was insane this year from from a run production standpoint. So speaking of Tampa, they're ahead now on Houston. Three nothing as of last night. And I've got to talk to you about uh, their left fielder, Randy Arozarena. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he's been red hot in these playoffs, leading the league with 15 hits, batting over 400. And he had another three hits last night. Alec, what are your thoughts about him considering this was his first full MLB season? Yeah, I mean, he's a kid that had the opportunity to play in the outfield due to some injuries with the Rays this season, and he absolutely maximized his opportunity. He was acquired in the offseason in a trade that also brought in Jose 
Martinez from the Cardinals. They brought Libator, who looks like he could be a very good starting pitcher. You look at the Cardinals, they're going to have Libator, Flaherty, and Hudson for a couple years. Uh, that looks like they're going to have a very solid rotation down the road. But back to the Rays, Rosarena was the guy they brought in. And, you know, obviously the opportunity at the beginning of the season looked a little dim due to the fact that they had guys like Kiermeyer and Meadows and Margot. Um, they brought in Renfro. They brought in a lot of guys, and it looked like a Rosarena wasn't going to get his opportunity here at the start of the season, but Martinez ended up getting traded to the Cubs, and next thing you know, with Meadows getting down, he gets the opportunity to play, and he absolutely crushed it. I mean, this guy's a professional hitter. He's a guy that has good at-bats. He's a guy, that's a guy that hits in the clutch. He's a guy that has been very consistent throughout this postseason. The Rays also have a very deep lineup, so he does – I mean, they, they just – they got a lot of guys that can play baseball. They're very well managed. So I think this guy – this kid's legit. I mean, I didn't really know how good he was when he was acquired, but clearly the Rays have one of the best front offices in Major League Baseball, and they, they see things we don't. And Rosarena is a kid who had some potential. He clearly started showing that he has a ton right now with this team. He's, he's hitting well right now, and good for him. I think he, he really deserves it. The Rays are one of the deepest teams in the league. I, I think a lot of success is with him in the future in that organization. They make it work with everyone. And not to mention, he, the home run he hit in game one off of Framber Valdez, that was very impressive, I thought. Um, and the back end of their bullpen, I was talking about it before I brought you on, Alec. Fairbanks, Castillo. Castillo's a young guy, I'm pretty sure, and he's just been he's been lights out. I mean, yeah, I mean pretty much been no hitting off of him. The thing with the Rays is they they have depth in their organization from a pitching standpoint. They always have, and Kevin Cash is one of the most creative managers in the league. He does matchups very well, and um, he's using it to his advantage in this series. So, and the thing with the Rays is their pitching depth took a little bit of a hit. They they're dealing with some injuries. Also, traded a few guys away in the offseason. So what Kevin Cash is able to do with really anyone that he has the ability to work with is absolutely fantastic. It's why he's one of the best managers in Major League Baseball. Tom Scavetta here with Alec Walt on Review and Preview. Remember to go check out um, In the Pen with Alec Walt on Wednesdays at 5.30, and then you and Fonz have your Transfer Portal podcast Saturday mornings, I believe 10 a.m. this week, correct? Yes, we're going live at 10 a.m. Looking forward to watching that. Um, but let's keep going. I know McCullers in this series, and again, those Tampa Bay bats, they got to McCullers in game two as well. I mean, despite the 11 strikeouts, they still, you know, four runs. That's pretty good. And then, uh, what was crazy about game two, Alec was Houston actually out hit Tampa Bay. Yeah. And to four, the Rays just seem like they have an edge in figuring out just how to get runs across the plate, which is something the Yankees struggle to do. I just think Tampa Bay, they, they've been so – and that's why I picked them to go all the way this year. You saw it again last night in game three. Well, Houston's you know? biggest issue right now is they've been terrible with runners in scoring position. They're doing – like they, they've, been, they've had a couple innings in this series where they've had the bases loaded and ended up with nothing. I mean, the, the Astros are getting hits. The Astros are getting guys on base. They're just not scoring. So that's one thing the Rays have been doing very well is, yes, they've been pitching under a ton of pressure facing some of the premier hitters in Major League Baseball. But at the end of the day, they're getting key outs and key moments and preventing them from scoring. So, yeah, you're right. Even though they had less hits, the – uh, Astros were unable to maximize any of theirs, and they had very few crossing the plate. They could have had way more, but the race pitching prevented them from scoring. It's crazy to even think about because I'm just super impressed with them. And Anoli 
Paredes. Paredes, think, yeah. Yeah. Three runs in a third of an inning. Houston's bullpen. I don't I don't know. It's just not very good, in my opinion. I know like they're decent, but I don't get it. They, they, they were, were able ahead. to get they were able to get through those shorter series because they used some of their starters in long relief roles and only used two or three pitchers to really get out of a few games. And one of the main questions going into this was for the Astros is once you started testing some of their pitching depth, how was it going to do? Because during the regular season, if you watched a couple Astros games, they would make a pitching change and you'd look around like, who the heck is this guy? You have to go on Google just to find out where the heck he came from. So that was one of the things they had to realize. Yes, they do have Fromber Valdez and a couple other very solid pitchers, but their depth was a little bit shaky and um, it started to get tested uh, and it's clearly not going in their favor, but that's one thing that helped them is they didn't have to use much of their depth in previous series and it's starting to affect them when it matters most. So, Alec, my question for you on Houston now is down 3 nothing. What do they have to do to extend this series? Because obviously they're in a big hole right now. They got to hit with men on scoring position. When the bases are loaded, you got to convert some runs. Um, that was, I've, I've watched way too many innings where they had guys in scoring position, and when the ending ended, they didn't touch home plate. They were running back to the dugout. They got to maximize those opportunities. Again, the Rays are on a team. Like they're not gonna, they're not like the Dodgers. They're not gonna score a bunch of runs. They're not a team that has a deep lineup that's like that's out of this world. They're a team that pitches well, plays solid defense, get, get scores runs, just not a ton. They they need to find a way to to do that. And I, I think the Astros are a team that still has a very good lineup. You know, Altuve, Bregman, Correa, Springer. I know it's obviously not in that order in the in, yeah. the, in the batting order, but. They got some guys who've been there before, and um, they need to get key hits and key moments. They need to make sure they maximize on those opportunities because um, the Rays maximize on opportunities. They always, they always do. They're a team that's they always do that. Um, yeah, or they need to start paying on trash cans. Hey, they made it this far without it, and they had a team that was worse than they were last year. So I do give the Astros some credit for making it this far this year. It's just at the end of the day, the Rays are a better team. Thank you very much, Andy, for commenting. Uh, make sure to check out Andy Hopper's podcast, the Brew Party Podcast. He interviewed uh, fellow Chicago Bears fan Caitlin Leonard tonight. Make sure to go check out her stuff as well on the Bear Down Girl podcast. I know we had both of them on Review and Preview a couple times. Uh, and it, it's crazy, too. They can't be giving up pinch hit, big pinch hit hits to guys like Hunter Renfro, too. That's going to exactly. kill them. He's been playing well, too. He's playing well defensively, too. <laughs> Joey Wendell. Wendell's uh, been playing great at third. Yeah. Now they're on the verge of their first World Series appearance since 2008. So Crazy. And then tonight, obviously, game four, Tyler Glass now on the mound against Zach Granke, who, I don't know, in my opinion, Granke hasn't looked great in these playoffs. I, I don't really get it. I think last year... I, I know he was better last year, but this year so far, I don't think he's recorded a win. Uh, I know Glass now had a really short start his last time out, but what do you think about Zach Greinke uh, overall so far? Zach Greinke, you know what you're getting from him. He's a guy who pitches really five innings. He may give up a hit or two, a home run or two. He's he's not the Zach Greinke uh, of old. And yeah, absolutely, let me know if you ever want. Um, heck yeah, I'm down, Andrew. Uh, the thing with uh, Granky is, you know, you you know what you're getting from him pretty much on a nightly basis, and I don't really think he's been that 
great here in the postseason. Obviously, he just hasn't pitched that many innings. They're going to need a lot of innings out of him tonight. I just don't really see it happening. But um, he's a guy who's on the older end of his career. He's a good, not great starting pitcher. He has postseason experience. He's not a guy that's going to get too distracted. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm the Astros... I mean, I guess I'm happy he's pitching for me tonight. He's the guy who's been in that game seven type game before. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, Tyler Glass now is looking for some redemption after getting rocked last year by the Astros in the postseason. And if I'm the Rays, I'm pretty damn happy. I got my flamethrower on the mound. (laughs) Excellent points there. And now switching gears to the National League, the L.A. Dodgers, the one seed against the two seed Atlanta Braves. They trail the series 2-0, but... Right now, they are ahead 15 to nothing. Crazy. In the top of the third inning. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, look, I said it before. I think this is the turning point of the series for them. I think this is advantage Dodgers the rest of the way. Maybe I'm speaking too soon. I know that's a bold prediction, Alec, but uh, it's crazy because, and I just think of it this way the Braves, this is the first time they've been here since 2001 in the NLCS. And, I know they hold the early series lead, but I just think the Dodgers are more experienced. And I think not having Mike Soroka in the rotation, I know Ian Anderson's been great, which we'll get to him in just a moment. But, um, you know, I don't know what it is. They do have the one-two best one-two punch remaining in these playoffs, in my opinion, though. So I just don't – I think they're too young compared to the Dodgers. Although the Dodgers' rotations are shaky, too. I do agree with that. And the Dodgers, yeah, we'll get to that. um, But when I look at this series right now, the one thing with the Braves is they played the Cubs. They were frozen offensively. Played the Marlins. They were frozen offensively. You knew this Dodgers team when they had Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts and Seager and Turner. And, you know, the list goes on and on with guys who can swing the bat that they weren't going to play a team through a seven-game series that was cold offensively. And then they played game one. The Dodgers didn't really do too much offensively. Game two, after Ian Anderson got pulled, they found a way to put some runs on the board. And that was really the first time in this postseason that the Braves were like, okay, we just faced a team that put up some runs on us. But that didn't happen in any other series. Now, the Dodgers found a way to get some confidence against a young pitcher who was pitching well lately, but clearly in this game, he wasn't ready, and he got absolutely rocked by the Dodgers, who have an absolutely insane lead right now. And the one advantage the Dodgers have right now is they're, um, they needed a win. It looks like they're getting it tonight. They needed to find a way to get some momentum. Well, tomorrow they have Clayton Kershaw on the mound, and the Braves, more likely than not, are going to pitch a bullpen like game because after their three starters, it's really like Josh Tomlin or something like that, yeah. who they could be going with the direction starting for, for tomorrow's game. But after him, it's going to be a lot of bullpen arms and, you know, they're going to be pitching a bullpen game against Clayton Kershaw. Clearly the advantage goes to the Dodgers. And which means if you lose that game, the series is now tied on tied two to two. Now, you do have the chance to bring your two young starters back on short rest. Who knows how long they pitch in those games. That also gives the Dodgers the ability to start 
a Walker Bueller again in this series, which will definitely help them. He's one of the best young starters in the league, but this is not a good time for the Braves to start losing because they could very easily tie this game tomorrow with the pitching advantage going uh, to the Dodgers. Again, you mentioned the bullpen. Their bullpen is very shaky, um, so the Dodgers need to make sure they get some length out of their starters because the starters is clearly where their strength is in regards to pitching, but um, yeah, if you get into the Jansons, the Joe Kellys, the Pedro Baezes, looking a little nerve-wracking right now for Dave Roberts. Definitely not something you're going to want to deal with as you get later here into this postseason. But uh, this is definitely a big game for the Dodgers. They needed this win tonight. It's clearly they're going to get it. And uh, tomorrow it's looking like they could tie this series with with their uh, one of the best pitchers of a generation on the mound. I still think it's a little concerning, too, because game one, Freed was great, only giving up that one run. And then in game two, you talked about Ian Anderson. I actually have a, a graphic of him here I'm going to share with the folks now um here it is (laughs) so ian anderson six games started this year his era was through he's really low and giving up only 21 hits all year you look what he's done in the postseason is this guy it is he ready for the big stage considering i think he came straight out of high school as well I think he is. I mean, he's proved it to me whether he's been in the big leagues this season. And obviously, we'll see how he adjusts as teams get more film on him, get used to some of his pitch tendencies. But, you know, he looks ready for the big leagues. I mean, when you look at him right now, one thing that's going to help is he's not going to be one thing that helps young pitchers. He's not going to be asked to be the ace on day one. He's behind a Soroka. He's behind a Freed. They also have a Kyle Wright, who's a young pitcher. He fits in really well with a young core group of guys led by Brian Snitker, who's one of the best managers in Major League Baseball. So when I look at Ian Anderson, I think he's here to stay. We'll see how he adjusts as next year goes on and more teams see how he pitches. Uh, But behind him in that rotation, the Braves are going to be good for a very long time. They have one of the best four-headed monsters. Uh, And they're young, they're controllable, and they're guys that all know each other. It's a very well-run organization there in Atlanta, and their starting pitching is set for a very long time. And not to mention, you know, his offense really gave him a lot of good support in game two as well. It definitely helps your confidence uh, as a pitcher being he's only 22 years old Yeah, uh, from Western New York, not too far from uh, Bonaventure, right? I don't know where Rexford is. I've never actually heard of that. Yeah, so definitely uh, excited to see what Ian Anderson could bring to the table, of course, uh, moving forward. He'll definitely be a good challenge for Jacob DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard when he comes back eventually for those Mets. But Travis Darno, a lot of success this postseason. It stung many Mets fans. How has he turned the sales around in 2020? I'm having trouble uh, figuring just figuring it out. I think he's definitely worked on his swing a little bit and his health has definitely helped him. But I want to hear from you on that. Well, they moved him up to fourth in the lineup. He's just well protected. I mean, that's one thing that's really well in Atlanta is they do a really good job finding the right guys to just key into certain spots in their batting order. For example, their team that's done really well bringing in free agents. Like they brought in Josh Donaldson, Marcelo Zuna, um, Dallas Keuchel, they they bring guys into a team that has its solid core established with Acuna, Albies, Freeman. The list goes on and on. You place them into a lineup that has protection, forces pitchers to pitch to you. And next thing you know, one of the reasons Atlanta has one of the deepest lineups in Major League Baseball is because they 
pick and choose the right guys. Now, Travis Darno was a guy that was starting to heat up uh, towards the end of last year, signed with the Rays, signed the deal with the Braves, and it's really turned things around. Alex Anthopoulos is a guy that knows him very well from his time in Toronto before he came to Atlanta. So he came to a a ball. He came to an organization that's one very well run, two very well managed, three he knows the GM, and two and four he's in a lineup that has unbelievable protection, especially right now when he's behind. I think he's behind Ozuna, who's one of the best power hitters in the yeah. league. They moved him up in the order, so there's a lot of contributing factors. But uh, the situation is near perfect for him. He's well protected. He knows the guys in the front office. And he's on a team that's winning, and winning does a lot for guys and their confidence in a batting order. I agree. I think having that protection is good. Dansby Swanson, another guy. It's another one, um, yeah. He's going forgotten. Yeah, Ozzy Albies, and of course, Hashini's their nine. Really? Yeah. <sighs> that's insane just to even think about. I know for the Mets, uh, he was clean up a lot, but then they moved them down to like six, seven, eight. They couldn't find a spot for him in the batting Pache? order. Uh, I'm sorry, not Pache. Dar- uh, I was stuck on Darno. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> they moved him the up. Yeah. yeah. But Pache, yeah, he seems to be – he's flying under the radar, in my opinion. I mean, I haven't watched him as much, but I feel like he could be another guy, too, that kind of just causes a lot of problems for teams, specifically in the NL East. Uh, this Braves lineup top to bottom is just scary. And now that yeah. their rotation, uh, you know, is becoming more filled with – not superstars, but legit arms. It concerns mm-hmm. me too heading into next year. It seems well, like they're a team that benefit. They're a team that benefited very much from the universal DH. They signed Marcelo mm-hmm. Zuna in free agency and ended up having. They were expecting him to be the everyday uh, left fielder next to Acuna and well, Pache's up by now. But they had guys like Marcakis. Um, is Enciarte hurt? Uh, you know, I'm not so, too sure. The other guys in the outfield, but once uh, that DH spot opened, they moved him to the everyday DH, and he absolutely destroyed the baseball. I mean, he was absolutely unbelievable this year. So they benefited a ton from that. They were a team that was, had a deep lineup and was able to improve their defense and then improve their offense with one of the best sluggers in the league. A lot worked well for Atlanta. I wish they 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 probably wish they knew they were playing seven consecutive days in the postseason at the trade deadline, so they mm. could acquire another starter. Um, they needed it at the deadline. Didn't really do too much. I I like the fact that Anthopoulos put the trust in his young pitchers, but at the end of the day, I think it'd be pretty nice even if they knew they had a Kevin Gossman pitching tomorrow. I yeah. mean, at the end of the day, they could they could have benefited from another starting pitcher, but um, a lot went yeah. well for Atlanta this year. I mean. They were injured, but still things still worked out for them. Like Soroka was hurt, but they had the pitchers. Um, you know, Freddie Freeman started with COVID nineteen, but they still had the depth in the lineup. It just they were still able to make things work and work well, even though they had roadblocks affecting them throughout the season. I give a lot of credit to Brian Snicker; he's one of the best managers in baseball. He he is really good, and I think Enciarte has been out with a hamstring. I'm pretty okay. sure, not a hundred percent, but I know he's been dinged up this year and then um yeah you just bring up a lot of good points this reminds me of like the 2000 that decade with the Braves just dominated the National League East like 14 in a row something like that division and their new chippers Freeman yeah uh but back to the series Alec Cody Bellinger he's been kind of sour lately I know he had a good game uh recently but having a good game today yeah Uh, (laughs) who else besides him do you think needs to step up 
Um, I know tonight it's been pretty much a combination of everybody. Max Muncy with the grand slam, uh, Jock Peterson in the three run bomb too in the first inning. Who specifically needs to be that compliment to Cody Bellinger? Well, I think at the end of the day, they brought in Mookie Betts to be that star player. They're expecting him to be the star player in star moments. And I thought the Mookie Betts has been the X factor all season for the Dodgers. I mean, since he's been a part of this team, he's been a run producing machine. He's been a guy that gets on the base pass very early in the game. I mean, we saw it today. He got on first base in the first at bat. Next thing you know, Corey Seager hits a double. He rounds third, scores home. They have one run to start the game. I mean, as a Boston Red Sox fan, I've seen this over and over again from Mookie Betts. He sets the tone at the top of the order. When he gets on base, there's a good chance he's rounding third and heading home. So, well, when I look at the Dodgers right now, if they they can get Betts on base, Seager hit him in, you know, look at the rest of their lineup. It's just unbelievably deep, and we've seen how that offense can all click at once tonight, and they're and they're throttling the Braves right now. So um, I think their X factor is Mookie Betts. It's why they brought him in, and if he can play clutch right now, they have a chance to win the World Series. 100%. And uh, another guy, too, that hit a home run, uh, Seager. Corey Seager, too. Cody Bellinger, Muncie. Edwin Rios has a home run tonight. It's been a yep, combination he plays, of everybody. playing third tonight. Yeah. So I think they've been really good. Um, O'Day and Tomlin have both been shaky out of the bullpen. They were last night, but uh, what do you make of the Dodgers right now? I know they're blowing it out of the water tonight offensively, but they did trail 6 nothing in the seventh inning. Do you think that they've regained the momentum in this series? Uh, that might be a silly question to ask up 15 to nothing, but remember, they still are down. And what do you think this performance tonight just does to their – confidence heading in you know to the later games in this series game four game five this is huge because they're playing a Braves team that's not used to giving up runs I mean that's one thing I said the Cubs and the Marlins they were freezing cold offensively in this series and now the Braves are in a position where they're starting a two they're starting a bullpen game they haven't done that in the postseason and they're giving up a lot of runs well until yesterday they haven't done that in the postseason. So I yeah. definitely think the momentum has swung back in the Dodgers' direction. I also think Brian Snicker has a tough decision to make because if you go if you go free game five, B. Anderson game six, you're not going to put um, right back out there for game seven after what happened today. So, you know, when do you start your one and two, your, your, your one and two in the rotation? How long do you bullpen? Do you have the ability to continue bullpenning with how some of your bullpen guys have looked right now? Snickers got a lot of decisions he needs to make in a very short period of time, but uh, the Dodgers definitely look like they have the momentum right now in this series. And you mentioned Pache. He just hit a home run. So, okay. Looking good. They finally have a run on the board. But, Alec, anything you'd like to add before I let you go here or any any World Series predictions you have? Um, I think the World Series prediction, uh, I gave the Braves way too much credit earlier today on my show. I didn't think Wright was going to look this bad today. Um, but I, I said from the beginning that I do think the Dodgers and the Rays are going to win are going to win their respective leagues. I mean, when you look at the, they're, they're, they're clearly the number one team in the American and national league. And when I look at the Dodgers right now, since they acquired Mookie Betts, I've been saying they're the favorite from the start until I see someone take them down. Um, that's who I'm picking. Now the Rays have proven they get clutch hits late in games and the Dodgers bullpen needs to make sure they pitch better. Cause I do trust the Rays in a matchup type game situation uh, because Kevin Cash has proven he can manage it no matter who his bullpen is. But um, at the end of the day, I do think the uh, very lazy prediction of Dodgers and 
and uh, Rays is going to take place next week in the World Series. Thank you very much, Alec. I couldn't agree with you more. Those are the teams I think are going to make it too. But um, remember to check out Alec Walt this Saturday, 10 a.m. Transfer Portal podcast. I know you guys are going to be talking about some interesting stuff. Did you want to plug anything on that? Uh, it should be it should be a interesting week. I mean, Nick Saban announced today he's been die- he has he has COVID nineteen. So. You know, they were expecting, I think this was Georgia week. I got, I've been in baseball mode all day today. I got to transition into college football mode to get some matchups ready. But um, yeah, there's been some changes into the top 25. Um, The big 10's getting much closer to playing this week. We'll do our uh, conference preview games. Hopefully we can get a few matchups in the SEC because I know Florida and LSU has been postponed. Um, We're going to predict all the top games of the day. So it's going to be a pretty exciting show. You can check it out 10 a.m. Eastern on JDF Sports. Looking forward to it. And the ACC is heating up too. So that's They got a bunch of teams ranked. I wasn't expecting it. I'm going to blister fawns for picking Miami against Clemson, but uh, I think you're Notre Dame's now in the, in this, in the top four. Yeah. They moved up to four, although they've only played three games because they had the COVID outbreak too. Uh, you know, I like them, but I don't know if they're going to like make any noise. You guys, the one thing you guys make, you guys do play North Carolina, correct? Yeah. They're a team that puts up a lot of points. Um, I, I like Ian book. I don't really like your tar his targets. I think you guys did take a few hits at wide receiver. You're tight. Your offensive line's really good. Um, I think you guys can run the football, but I think they just their wide receivers are so electric. You guys got to put like 35 plus points to win that game. I I do think our tight ends though, Tommy Tremble and uh, Mayer, the freshman. I think those two are great. The wide receivers aren't great, but you know we'll see what happens. It's all fun and games by the way i may have recorded fawn speaking to the camera saying miami's gonna be oh yeah when he when he i when he started talking i just knew he was picking miami and i just left the screen (laughs) thank you so much alec appreciate the time and uh hope to chat with you again soon sounds good man i appreciate you having me on if you ever want me back just let me know man i love this show you guys are great perfect will do thanks alec hey thank you man that was Alec Walt of JDF Sports. Remember to go check out his shows uh, Saturday morning, the Transfer Portal podcast at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And then he hosts the In the Pen baseball show featuring all MLB stuff on Wednesdays at 5.30. So now I'm going to transition and recap the NBA Finals. So the Lakers win their 17th NBA championship. Shocker. Um it was in a valiant effort. They did it in six games. Miami put up a fantastic effort on Friday night. Um, Tyler Hero was great in this series. Most three-pointers ever made by a rookie in playoff history. And I did predict the Lakers to win this series in six games. So, uh, you know, I was very impressed that they were able to do that. Uh, in game five, though, you know, last week we left off. They were four games in. In game five, Miami put a really, really good effort. They won by three. Game is back and forth late in the game, fourth quarter. Jimmy Butler came in the clutch down the stretch. Um, 35 points in 47 minutes he logged, shooting 58% from the field, 12-12 from the line. He had a triple-double, 12 rebounds, 11 assists. I mean, this guy's the real deal. Jimmy Buckets, we should call him. Um, And Duncan Robinson, too. Uh, Sheen from Jimmy Neutron had 26 points. Dinged up seven threes, seven to 13 from deep. He was great. 
Uh, Hero and Hero with 12 points starting for Goran Dragic. That really killed the Heat. Not having Goran Dragic in the series was tough uh, after game one. I know he came off the bench in game six, but not having him in game five was really difficult. Uh, the Heat only missed one free throw that whole game. They used the seven-man rotation. Nunn and Iguodala both came off the bench. 42% from downtown, too. Miami was lights out in game five. They uh, they were great despite giving up 40 points to LeBron. They limited uh, L.A.'s other scoring options. Danny Green was not doing great. Uh, Anthony Davis had 28 points, 12 rebounds, had three blocks as well. But outside of them, too, and KCP, the Lakers' offense was not great. Uh, in my opinion, this was the best game of the series. Game five, hundred percent. You can't really make an argument to me that any other game was better. Hundred percent. Game five, hands down. Game six. You know, it, it was rough. The Lakers ended up winning one hundred six to ninety three, winning their seventeenth NBA championship. LeBron James was named NBA Finals MVP, accumulating his fourth ring. Caldwell Pope had seventeen again, and then. Rajon Rondo with 19 points off the bench. I don't know where that came from. And the Lakers tweaked their lineup a little bit in game six. Uh, They started Pope, Caruso, LeBron, Davis, and Green. It worked. It worked. Miami didn't have an answer. Bam and Abaya was not 100% in this series. Uh, You know, Jay Crowder, a good defender, but he's a little bit undersized trying to defend LeBron and AD in the paint. Uh, where does Miami rank in the East right now? Well, in my opinion, they are right up there with teams like Milwaukee and Toronto. Again, this bubble thing, you know, I don't want to take anything away from Miami, but the bubble definitely shake things up a little bit in some ways I didn't necessarily expect, but I think the heat really did a fine job. You got to give credit. There's a lot of no name guys coming out of college and high school that were not highly recruited, not highly scouted. And they came together as a team. It's not drafting all these superstar type of players. If you have the best team, you're bound for success. And that's exactly how you would describe the story of the 2020 Miami Heat basketball team of the NBA. Uh, Eric Spolstra is a very underrated head coach in this league. He's been to the NBA Finals three times now. Cannot give him enough credit. And now I bring up this debate. Where is LeBron James in the GOAT conversation? Now, I've seen things on social media that have been pretty disturbing over the past few days. And, you know, it just really gets me mad that people still think that LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. And quite frankly, he's not. And I have a graphic to prove it. So let's just take a look at this for a second, uh, folks. LeBron James, Michael Jordan. LeBron James has played for three teams throughout his career. He started out in Cleveland his first seven years. Then he went to Miami for four. And now he's went back to Cleveland for another three, four. And now he's in L.A. His NBA career is practically a movie, a movie. Uh, it's something you kind of watch in like a biography of, that you'd make about somebody. You look at this four championships with three different teams. Four time finals MVP. I get it. But you look at Michael Jordan, four NBA championships, all with the same team, also a four-time finals MVP. It's these people that were not around for the Michael Jordan era that are saying LeBron is the best. He's not. He's not. And if you look down at the accolades that I have lower, which I'll get to in a few moments, I want you folks watching and listening right now to really analyze those graphics um, and those notes that I have. LeBron James, and this just – 
Michael Jordan brought the NBA up. And I think right now you just look at this graphic here and you look at this, look at these two teams overall. Michael Jordan is clearly better than LeBron. You guys sound stupid when you post on your Twitter account saying, oh, LeBron James is now the GOAT. Stop it. Nobody wants to listen to that. LeBron James started all 82 games once. Le- Michael Jordan, he did it eight times. Folks, that should not go unnoticed. Another thing I want to bring up, LeBron James has averaged over 30 points per game twice in his career. Michael Jordan did that for seven straight years. Come on. I'm not a big numbers guy, but people are saying people who are saying LeBron James is statistically better than Michael Jordan, get out. It's not true. <laughs> I have facts here to prove it. A LeBron James is a 16-time NBA All-Star in 17 seasons. Michael Jordan played 15 NBA seasons and made the All-Star game 14 times. And now we just look at some of the teammates that they played with. I mean, I think LeBron James has had an edge with teammates. Remember Wade and Bosh. Um, LeBron James went to Miami because of them, bringing in Chris Bosh, knowing that Dwayne Wade was already there. Same thing with Cleveland, winning with Kyrie and Kevin Love. He had a big three in each of those two teams with good role pieces. Uh, he never won a ring with Ilgowskis, but that was a notable teammate who played with him for a while. Ray Allen was there in Miami. He helped them. Ray Allen's three-point shot against the Spurs in 13 was the reason why that Miami ended up coming back to win that series. They were down with a minute left late in the game, and the Miami Heat needed that shot. Otherwise, they weren't winning the finals. Now you look at Michael Jordan. Had Scottie Pippen, great scorer, averaged 20, 25 points a game roughly throughout his career. Dennis Rodman, rebounding machine, couldn't score, but he's an excellent defender. Horace Grant, another good role player. Tony Kukoc, who I happen to really like. And then B.J. Armstrong and Steve Kerr, who had a big shot in the finals for the Chicago Bulls. So you just look at this graphic right here, folks, and I don't know, feel free to comment in the comments section. Tell me what you see. Tell me what you think. Personally, this proves it right here that Michael Jordan has the upper hand over LeBron James. There's no other way to put it. There is no other way to put it. I mean, this is just my opinion, but let me know who you think the GOAT is. I think it's Michael Jordan. Uh, And now I'll put this, uh, stop sharing my screen here. Uh, And, yep, Jordan, LeBron, like the little color-coded thing. And a lot of people forget Jordan did come back. He was out of the NBA for three years. He did retire, came back to play for the Washington Wizards. So, you know, he was around for a while as well. He had – a big comeback in this league. Remember, he's still, he was still an all-star. But, yeah, those are the facts, and I will stop sharing my screen. And now it's time for uh, our team of the week, and I'm going to get that up right now. So my team of the week is the Tennessee Titans. This is a team that did not practice for over two weeks due to the COVID-19 outbreak. They smashed up the undefeated Buffalo Bills last night to remain perfect. The Titans approved the 4-0 on the season. It's a season where you got to remember the Titans. They were great. Derrick Henry was really good. Tannehill in the red zone is elite. A.J. Brown being back healthy is great for Tennessee. And then, um, you know, Buffalo just did not impress me. Josh Allen, a couple turnovers in this game, ended up getting benched late when the game was out of hand. They put Matt Barkley in. Uh, Devin Singletary, 
Again, Buffalo is just not they're, – they're, they're just not I – don't, I don't know what it is. They can't win big games on the road against good teams, and this proved it right here with Tennessee. So Tennessee, great effort. They are my team of the week. Gabe Flayton will be joining the show tonight at 8.30 p.m. I just spoke with Alec Walt. We talked all things MLB playoffs. Great interview with him. So now I have a little lull here where I'm by myself for the next half hour. Let's talk about the 0-5 New York Jets. The Jets. The same team that released former rushing leader and Pro Bowl running back Le'Veon Bell. The same team that's 0-5 and hired a terrible head coach in Adam Gase. The same team that took four years to finally build a average offensive line. The Jets fall to the Arizona Cardinals 30 to 10, and it's the Cardinals' first road win against the Jets since 1975. It's been that long. It's been 45 years, guys. Kyler Murray threw for 380 yards, one touchdown. Kenyon Drake was good. Chase Edmonds had a nice touchdown in this game. Kyler Murray with a rushing touchdown as well. DeAndre Hopkins, six catches, 130 yards. The corners couldn't stop him. I know Blast Austin was out, but you still had Brian Poole and Marcus May. Uh, Fitzgerald had some nice catches. The Cardinals finally got Christian Kirk involved in the offense. Defensively, the Cardinals had three sacks, two of them coming from Dennis Gardeck, one from Buda Baker, and you outgained the Jets 496 to 285. It was crazy because the Cardinals had 10 penalties, and they still destroyed the Jets. Let's talk about the Jets. Joe Flacco starting for the Jets. He's just announced as the starter again for this week against Miami. The Jets go down to South Beach to play them. Joe Flacco, a New Jersey native near the Philadelphia area, was 18 for 35, 195 yards and one touchdown. He is now 2-10 and 10 in his last 12 starts. No bueno for Joe. Rushing-wise, Le'Veon Bell and Frank Gore combined for 90 yards. But receiving-wise, outside of Jamison Crowder, there is nobody. Chris Hogan got hurt. He's now placed on short-term IR with an ankle injury. Avery Williamson with a pick. John Franklin Myers with a sack. You know, you appreciate the effort from these guys, but the Jets as a team, they are just not cutting it right now. This is not a team that's going anywhere. This is a team that is bound to pick in the top two of this year's draft. They're not going to win many games, if any, at this point. I see maybe one or two wins on the schedule max at this point. I'm trying to be very rational here with you uh, Jet fans. I get it. Mekhi Beckton didn't play. Bless Austin didn't play. Sam Darnold, Rashad Perriman, Ashton Davis, good young, talented players. But come on, guys. You can't lose by 20 points to the Cardinals at home. That's embarrassing. A below-average defense in Arizona. I get it. Murray and Hopkins, that's a tough duo to stop. But come on. And then the Jets, each transaction, they cut Moncrief. They cut Bell. Who, by the way, cutting Le'Veon Bell, it was good in a sense because he had the highest cap hit of any running back. But you can't acquire anybody for this guy. Nobody wants Le'Veon Bell. You can't work some magic to get a trade, Joe Douglas. I don't know what the the current situation is on that, but come on. Bad. Really, really bad. 
Where will Le'Veon Bell land? There's been some talk about the Arizona Cardinals. Oddly enough, the Chicago Bears are a team that's expressed some interest. The Miami Dolphins, even the Pittsburgh Steelers, you never know. So it'll be very interesting to see where Le'Veon Bell lands. Uh, I'm not so sure where he may land, but right now, you know, it's just hard to imagine that he'll be signed anytime soon with the whole COVID situation. It may take a couple of weeks. Are the Jets the worst team in the NFL? That's what I'm not sure about because right now it just really seems to me that the Jets, you know, among all other teams that are really struggling, I don't personally think the Jets are like me when fully healthy. I don't think they're the worst team in the NFL. Right now they're the worst team in the NFL. They are. Their schedule is really difficult. I get it, but. They've just really, really been flat in every game they've played this year. Now they play the Miami Dolphins in week six. This is their second divisional game of the year. The Dolphins come in with a 13th ranked offense with weapons such as Ryan Fitzpatrick, Devontae Parker. The list goes on. Mike Jasicki, the tight end, is pretty solid. Miles Gaskin, the running back. Predictions for this week. I have Miami winning. I have Miami winning big. I have Miami winning by 17 points. I think the Jets fail to put up double-digit points. I think the Miami Dolphins win by a final score of 27-9. to I think Sam Ficken gives the Jets three field goals, and the Dolphins come away with a win to get themselves back to 500. Three and three is really good for a Miami Dolphins team that's young. They just completely revamped their organization last year, bringing a new head coach, Brian Flores, trading away Minka, all those guys. But, man, yeah, that's that's going to be really interesting. And now we move on to the Giants before we bring on Gabe Flayton. So the Giants are also 0-5, but this is a different 0-5 feeling. This is a feeling where there's some promise, where as with the Jets, there's nothing. There's nothing there right now. Uh, the Cowboys beat the Giants 37-34 to off a game-winning 37-yard field goal by Greg Zerline. Giants led 14-3 into the second quarter, thanks to an Evan Ingram touchdown rush and a Kyler Fackrell pick six. Kyler Fackrell intercepted a pass that was deflected off the hands by Ezekiel Elliott. We'll talk more about that play tomorrow night on Big Blue Avenue with myself and Hank and Victor at 7 p.m. Make sure to tune into that, folks, here on Review and Preview Sports, but uh, Fackrell is a really good acquisition for this team. He played on their D.C., Pat Graham in Green Bay, and the vision he had to score a touchdown after picking off that ball off a of Dak was just brilliant. It was a great play made by Fackrell. So then the Giants are up 14-3, to and then the second quarter is where things went south. You had the Daniel Jones fumble. Um, Dallas outscored. New York 21 to six in the second quarter. Uh, it was really rough leading 24 to 20 at halftime. Zeke puts the Cowboys up 31, 23, 12 yard touchdown rush. Dak Prescott with a gruesome ankle injury breaks his ankle out of place. Terrible injury. If you watch it on YouTube, you're going to cringe. It's not fun to watch. First off thoughts and prayers to Dak Prescott. Uh, we wish you the best. Hope you get well soon. He had ankle surgery that night on Sunday night, and he'll be out for the remainder of the season. 
and a great action by his former head coach, now Giants offensive coordinator, Jason Garrett, coming out to check on his former quarterback. I think him doing that, it shows how great of a guy he is. That's why the organization loved him, why Jerry Jones kept him around for so long. He cares about his players. He cares about his staff and personnel. And shout out to Jason Garrett for doing that. Uh, I'm sure Dak and his family, friends, really appreciate it. And the Cowboys faithful as well. You know, I'm not a big Cowboys fan. Uh, let's get into some of the logistics and numbers into this game. Daniel Jones, third week in a row. He fails to throw a touchdown pass. Oh, my bad. Fourth week in a row. Uh, <laughs> 20 of 33, 222 yards and a lost fumble. That was returned for a touchdown by Anthony Brown. This was huge because I'm pretty sure that gave Dallas the lead. Giants were ahead. And Jones, again, this is not Thanksgiving, man. Don't be giving up turnovers like that to the opposition. A team that has a terrible defense. They have a decent front seven, but their secondary is trash. Uh, You heard it here first. To be fair, though, Daniel Jones was pressured on 19 of his 35 dropbacks. Uh, Look, Jones has his own issues, but the offensive line is the major focus, pinpointed problem of this team. You have a rookie in Andrew Thomas. You have second-year, third-year guy in Nick Gates at center, first time ever playing center, Cam Fleming, who they acquired in the offseason from Dallas, fun fact, played under Jason Garrett, former Patriot as well, played under Joe Judge. Kevin Zeitler, the highest-rated Giants offensive lineman, according to Pro Football Focus, guys. Uh, you know, he's he's a good offensive lineman. But let me tell you something. They stink. There's no way around it. They're the reason why they're losing games. Daniel Jones was pressured on 19 of 35 dropbacks. Devontae Freeman got the ball moving a little bit. The running game was better. Freeman had 60 yards and a touchdown. Goldman, 5 for 24. And Darius Slayton, earning his honor on PFF, Offensive Team of the Week, had eight catches on 129 yards, should have arguably had nine on that touchdown that was called back. Uh, Had 11 targets, averaged 16 yards a catch, and he forced four missed tackles. Golden Tate had four catches. Ingram only had one catch despite the rushing touchdown. The Giants need to find a way to get him the football. They have to. Defensively, Logan Ryan with nine tackles. Colbert, Adrian Colbert, good to see him finally play a game. Dalvin Tomlinson had his first sack of the year. Good machine in the trenches up front. Fackrell, in addition to the interception, returned for a touchdown. Also had a tackle for a loss and three more. Darnay Holmes and Marcus Golden get half a sack each, and Marcus Golden is what I want to focus on here. Marcus Golden's finally going to get playing time in this defense because O'Shane Zimenez is on IR. He's going to be out for another two games. We won't see him until at least week eight. So for the next two weeks, it's going to be Fackrell and Golden starting. They just signed Trent Harris off the street yesterday, former uh, Miami Dolphin, has some chemistry with Judge and Graham working with them previously. And they also signed Kendall Coleman, an undrafted rookie free agent out of Syracuse. It'll be interesting to see where they fit in in the system, if they're more practice squad guys or if one of them are elevated. Rookies Carter Coughlin and Cam Brown, a couple late-round flyers, will get more time now. In this rotation, you may see Carter Coughlin 
getting some snaps on Sunday on defense. I've never seen Coughlin get any defensive snaps. Cam Brown I've seen for a couple plays. So I'm really excited for that against the Washington football team. Um, And now we look at the defense. Lorenzo Carter ruptured his Achilles. Really tough because he was our best edge rusher this season so far. There's a lot of promise there. You just hate to see him go down like that. Uh, You know, definitely not good. And this team deserves a lot better. Um, Man, snakes. These injuries, man, I got to tell you, it's just not good. Who replaces Lorenzo Carter? This guy played 85% of the snaps, 86% of the snaps on defense. Who replaces him? You know, I got to tell you, that's that's something that is going to be left to be foreseen. We move on to the Dallas Cowboys. Dak Prescott, before getting hurt, 14 to 21, 165 yards, one interception. Andy Dalton was pretty good in relief, went nine for 11, 111 yards. I liked what I saw from him in the limited action that he had, and he'll be starting for the rest of the season. Although Dalton did lose a fumble, that was recovered by the Giants, and then was that led to points for New York. Um, said Wilson had that 11-yard touchdown pass to Dak Prescott, which they like to call the Philly special. That was a good play. Rushing-wise, Zeke, 91 yards and two touchdowns on 19 carries. City Lamb was great, 125 yards. Gallup had a big catch in the fourth quarter on that last drive, setting up the Zerline field goal. James Bradbury was great. He held Amari Cooper to one catch for eight yards. That's incredible. Amari Cooper was basically eliminated from this game. And that's why you saw City Lamb make some catches and Michael Gallup make a couple late. Schultz only had one catch. The Giants didn't allow much to the tight end. Jalen Smith and Demarcus Lawrence are still really good players. Everson Griffin got his first sack as a Cowboy, had half a sack. And then look at the yards. Dallas outgained the Giants, 402 to 300. They outrushed the Giants, 126 to 89. And then, you know, you really look deeper into this. Dallas lost the turnover battle, 2 to 1. And they found a way to win. Each team had two sacks. Look, it was very even. It was very even if you look at it. How did the Cowboys win this game? They had the better team. I hate to say it. The Giants are 0 5 for a reason. They suck. There's promise there. Joe Judge is a good head coach. He's going to be here for a while. But the GM is an issue. We know that. We know that Big Dave, this Boston, doesn't work here in New York. We've seen that. He's had three years to put together a team, and this is what you've had to put out. It's just not good. I mean, you see what Miami's done. They're winning games. The Giants aren't. Now you sit here, 0-5, dud, and you're looking to get your first win against the Washington football team. Sounds like the Giants from last year. There's been no improvement so far. Maybe in coaching and attention to detail. But, man, you know, I've got to say, the Giants, there was some improvement from week four, winning the time of possession battle against Dallas. They were without three starting offensive linemen. Tyron Smith and Lael Collins were out for the season. And then center Joe Looney, who sprained his MCL, will miss four to six weeks. Uh, the Giants had eight penalties in this game, two of them that negated touchdowns. The Giants had missed opportunities, shot themselves in the foot. Joe Judge went irate with the official 
after he called back the Riley Dixon touchdown pass on the fake field goal to Evan Ingram. It was an illegal shift on Cam Fleming. They called it on Nick Gates, but Cam Fleming was the man who moved. And Gabe with a comment here. What move does Coach Judge need to make to spark the Giants? Well, I think to answer your question, Gabe, I think Joe Judge needs to do a lot. I think you have to find out who really fits this team right now because I'll be honest with you, next year, this is what I want the starting line to look like. Thomas, Hernandez, Gates, Lemieux, if Zeitler doesn't come back, and then Pert at right tackle. Pert needs to get more reps at right tackle. I think that's a move that needs to be made over Cam Fleming. Get the man some experience because you know the Giants are not going anywhere this year. You know it. Even though the division is atrocious, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> Sad, but true. Um, another move I think needs to be made is you have to see Marcus Golden out there more. The guy's in a really good edge rusher. This guy had double-digit sacks last year, 10 sacks. We've barely seen him. Through five games as half a sack. I guarantee you, second half of the season, Marcus Golden, Fackrell, Zimenez, Carter Coughlin, Cam Brown, whoever it may be, they're going to be – look, I said it. The Giants will finish the second half of the season with an above 500 record. They will win more than they lose, especially after the bye week. Their bye week is late. It's not until week 11. Um, The Riley Dixon fake field goal touchdown pass to Ingram. As great as this play was, you have to be set on the line. You can't shoot yourself in the foot and miss opportunities like that. Uh, I just don't. I just don't approve. I approve of the play call, but it's just Cam Fleming. He's very difficult to watch. It's another reason why Matt Perk should be out there soon. So those are some moves I think the Giants need to make. Special teams is great. Defense is good despite all the injuries. David Mayo is coming back probably this week. So that'll be interesting. And then the offensive pass interference on Damian Ratley that negated the 31-yard touchdown pass from Daniel Jones to Darius Slayton. That was rough. Ratley, I didn't see much there. I would have let it go. Look, the officials definitely. This is my opinion. Dallas seems to always get game of the week every single week. And it's frustrating as a football fan of any team to see Dallas get a lot of favoritism from the NFL. I'm not going to go ahead and say that the officials were favoring Dallas. They weren't. They really weren't. At the time, I was frustrated because of those two penalties that brought the touchdowns back. But at at the end of the day, you can't blame the officials. You could only blame yourself. Don't put yourself in that position late in the game. Dallas only had three penalties the entire game. That's why they won. They made fewer mistakes despite losing the turnover battle. After Dak left, Dallas took over the game. They really did. Uh, Preview week six now. Does David Mayo return? Uh, I think he will. I'm not 100% certain, though. Uh, You know, partially torn meniscus is tough to come back from. And then you look at Jones, too. I think if the Giants lose this week, to Washington, you need to consider benching Daniel Jones and not because he's not the guy, because you want him to learn and see what Colt McCoy does out there that he can take notes from in-game, live action, and learn for the following week. 
Because I think last year the Giants started Daniel Jones too soon. Eli Manning only started two games before they uh, brought in Daniel Jones as the starting quarterback. If Jones had more games to watch Eli Manning, I think he'd be in a little better shape right now as far as turnovers go, awareness on the field, vision, accuracy, the whole package. But unfortunately, he only had four games to watch Eli Manning. I guess him getting hurt was a little bit of a blessing for his case in watching Eli. I know him and Eli still communicate, but sometimes that's not enough. This is a disastrous NFC East. The Giants are still in the race, but it's going to be very difficult for the Giants to win many games this season. Uh, And now, what's the key to beating Washington this weekend? Well, you need to put pressure on Kyle Allen. This guy has chemistry with head coach Ron Rivera from the Carolina days, and you have to stop the run. J.D. McKissick is a guy they may use. Antonio Gibson, the rookie, that's going to be difficult. I think those are some of the keys. If Chase Chase Young, I know he's been a little banged up, but I'm pretty sure he'll play. You have to contain him. He's idolized a lot of his game after the great Giants defensive legend, Lawrence Taylor. But I'm going to pick this game, and I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to say the Giants win their first game of the, seeding, uh, of the season, Sorry, beating the Washington football team by a final score of 23-17. to 17. The Giants will win, and at this time, uh, enough on the Giants. I'm going to bring on my guest, my second guest of the evening, Gabe Flayton from Cornwall, New York. Gabe, welcome to the show, and great job yesterday on the North Pole. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Um, I just got some new Wi-Fi. Fun fact, I uh, had to cut out of the backstage for a little bit as I get my 5G boost so let's hope tonight uh, goes well in the Wi-Fi department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Gabe, it's been a crazy week in the NFL. A lot of upsets. We saw Chicago NFC North team upsetting Tampa Bay. Uh, Cairo Santos, the game-winning field goal. And I know you talked about that game, but Brady on that last play. Like, do you really think he actually knew – that it was fourth down because I think he did. I think he played it off as if he didn't to try to trick the official. What do you think? I I don't think it would have made a difference even if he did. I, I think he genuinely didn't know um, because the they didn't spike the ball. So maybe with, since they didn't spike the ball, it kind of got in his head that they had, uh, you know, an extra down. Then, uh, but – they didn't have an extra down, but either way, he made an aggressive throw. It's not like he checked it down. He made a throw that would have been a first down if, if it was caught. Uh, so I don't think it mattered. I think Tom Brady had a decent game. I don't think he can be blamed for the loss for Tampa. I think their offensive lines, penalties and mistakes were just too much for him to overcome. He hates his teammates in, in, in some, uh, at some points in this game. He was clearly mad at his teammates and I don't blame him. He's playing with really what is some of I, – I shouldn't say the less well-coached than what he was uh, used to in New England, but these guys are definitely not as disciplined as his teammates were in New England. That's a good point you bring up there. And then Carolina and Atlanta, that was a good game too. The Falcons end up firing their head coach, Dan Quinn, finally, long overdue. They fire their special teams coordinator and they fire their GM, Thomas Dimitrioff. 
think to Mitrov. Uh, does Atlanta need to restart and get rid of Matt Ryan? I know Carolina's been really good without uh, McCaffrey, but I mean, the Falcons should have won that game at home. I mean, they're, they're playing for their coach, and there was just nothing. Yeah, and I want to add to that uh, on the topic of canning people. Um, I just got an email today. I, I subscribed to an ad uh, ad agency uh, blog, and I just saw that Home Depot fired their ad agency that they were using. And none other than Arthur Blank runs Home Depot. So uh, on the topic of that, I found that funny. Holy um, but yes, <laughs> yeah, they had that ad agency for 25 years. So longer than uh, you know Dan Quinn and all of them, but the Falcons right now are playing the the Vikings this week, and I will be shocked if Atlanta finds a way to win against Minnesota. Um, and you can call me biased for that, but I just don't see how it's getting any better right now in Atlanta. Uh, in Houston, we saw the, the a difference where. It got better after they got rid of Bill O'Brien. They played the best game by far this year. I think for Atlanta, I don't think getting rid of coaching or getting a new coach right now is going to really fix anything or give them the spark that they need. These guys were already playing really hard. Uh, I think they've just been riddled with injuries this year and bad luck. But at some point, once a coach loses his team and his locker room, you have to call it quits. And I think this was long overdue. Yeah, and now the Falcons are 0-5 for the first time since 1997. So, man, they're probably going to have a top-five pick in this year's draft. I think that's an understatement. So, uh, yeah, it's been crazy. Their de- their defense hasn't been good. I know they uh, they drafted A.J. Terrell out of Clemson, but they've been bad, Gabe. And another team that hasn't been too great is the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, as expected, though. They drafted Joe Burrow. Number one overall, they lose to Baltimore. Lamar Jackson's had a lot of success against NFC North teams throughout his career thus far. Cincinnati got smacked 27-3, to and we're going to do a little compare and contrast later between the two top rookie quarterbacks in Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert. Really looking forward to, really looking forward to that. But um, as a Vikings fan that you are, it's just crazy because – Bill O'Brien got fired after his week four loss to Minnesota. And then Houston comes out in week five, beats Jacksonville 30 to 14, their fifth straight win against Jacksonville. But are you concerned at all that Atlanta is going to come out with a chip on their shoulder after pretty much cleaning house? Like I said before, I just don't see them making uh, a big jump in, in performance and production. Uh, Julio Jones is still battling injuries. So, and you mentioned AJ Terrell before. I'm not sure if he's coming off of COVID yet, off the COVID uh, reserve list. They have, I think they just had another injury in their secondary to Casey or Kazee. Um, Kazee, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just the injury bug hit them harder than really anybody this year. And it, and it's come in their secondary and Justin, it seems like it's just their secondary. And that's the worst part is it's, it's stockpiling at one position. And how many guys do you have uh, in the NFL in your, on your bench that can get filled, filled in right away and perform at the secondary position. It's one of the hardest things to get inexperienced guys to step up their game uh, because they're just on an Island and Adam Thielen, Justin Jefferson, 
Irv Smith finally in Minnesota, and then Alexander Madison in the passing game as well. He's arguably better in the passing game than Dalvin Cook is. Expect them to throw a bunch of screens, deep passes to Thielen. Justin Jefferson will be wide open in the slot all game. It'll be a pick-your-poison game for Kirk Cousins, and I'd be shocked if Minnesota doesn't score over 28 points. And I told you, Gabe, don't lose faith in your Vikings. I mean, you got probably – I know Cook is out this week, but you have a great backup in Madison who, if you got to pick somebody up on your fantasy team, make sure you put in a waiver for him tomorrow, folks. Um, he's good. Uh, and then Thielen and Jefferson, the top two rated wide receivers, according to PFF, a site that you love to use. Is that still the case? just want to clarify. Right now, Justin Jefferson got demoted to four. He's now the fourth best. Uh, and I think it's flawed. I think PFF is flawed um, because I just don't think Justin Jefferson is better than Devontae Adams, Julio Jones, um, Michael Thomas. I mean, right. Michael Thomas is not, isn't going to be in the top 20 right now because of his injury. But just in general, it's so there's so many guys who are better than him. And I just think Justin Jefferson is right now, you can only judge him based on the system he's in. And in that system that Minnesota runs, it is such a run-heavy system where everybody's eyes are looking at Dalvin Cook. So, of course, guys like Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen are going to thrive. I don't think he's he's as good as he's uh, scouted as in PFF, but he's he's been great all year for sure. And another game, too, this week that was fun to watch, Las Vegas upsetting the Kansas City Chiefs in Arrowhead. First time they've won there since 2012. Henry Ruggs had the most absurd stat line ever. Two catches for 188 yards and one touchdown. Uh, like, I might I might have made a typo if it was 118, but actually, let, let me check that because I, I want to. It was. It was 118. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 118 yards and one touchdown. I'm just like, whoa. Like, this guy is, you know, a home run type of receiver. But, um. Carr really couldn't get much going in this game. Renfro only had one catch. Uh, Josh Jacobs and Jalen Richard and Dallin Waller, look, those are really good weapons to have. And John Gruden is your coach. I think the Raiders' offense was pretty good in this game considering the circumstances. And are the Chiefs a team that should be worried? Because now they have to go to Buffalo, who's coming off a loss to Tennessee. They're mad. Should the Chiefs be a little bit worried because there's been some times this year where they've underperformed? Yeah, and right now they just uh, had a huge injury this past week to Osemele, who unfortunately tore, I think, tendons in both of his knees. It was yeah. really – it was a harsh injury to look at on while I watched the game. I caught most of the game, and it was pr- – I actually, I caught the first half. And it felt like I watched an entire game because of how high scoring it was. Uh, it's it's ridiculous how Swiss cheese the Chiefs defense looks at time at times. They just their secondary time and time again just I, they haven't been that great in the past you know four years. And they've been able to win shootouts. And the Raiders are a team that usually goes into a shootout. I'm shocked that you know Pat Mahomes didn't win this one. But how about that defensive line for Oakland? Um, Zach, or not Zach Crosby, but something Crosby, Max, Max Crosby, Max Crosby yeah. yeah, awesome talent. Guys, you know, running all over the field there. Uh, that offensive line is really good in Oakland, too. Josh Jacobs had some really nice holes. I think there's going to be a lot of times this year where the Chiefs meet their match 
they they have a lot of flaws on that team and they they are a lot like Seattle where they rely on their quarterback to win them games both teams very flawed right now is there a perfect team in the NFL I don't no. think so there's so many teams with with a lot of flaws I'd say the Packers are probably your most well-rounded team right now it's funny because you talk about perspective and then I know my friend who's a Chiefs fan thinks the Chiefs and the Seahawks are the front runners right now but I'll be honest with you I agree with you and Kevin O'Brien. The Packers are the best team in the NFL right now. They really are. And it's because of their quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. He is pretty much, I'm just going to say it, he's better than Patrick Mahomes this year so far. He is. He's the best quarterback in football, like it or not. And Patrick Mahomes isn't even the second best quarterback in football right now. It's Russell Wilson. It is. Patrick Mahomes is probably the third best quarterback in football right now. Um, what's your take on that? Do you agree? That's, it's so hard to say who's better. Uh, I saw Mahomes make a phenomenal throw against the Raiders across his body. He's still got it. I, I'd say Aaron Rodgers right now is the more, it, what he is doing makes the Packers a more dangerous team than Kansas City because I think yeah. Kansas City has already reached their ceiling. Uh, when you look at their roster right now, their only real improvement from a year ago would be Edwards Hilaire. And even he is kind of mellowed out after yeah. that big game against Houston. So I would say you're right. Aaron Rodgers is probably playing the best. And I think him playing the best means more to the Packers than each of the other two teams. Oh, 100%. Um Moving on to the Battle of Pennsylvania between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Pittsburgh Steelers. They play once every four years, and the Steelers won this time 38-29. Their first 4-0 start since 1979, and I think the big story here is the emergence of Chase Claypool, wide receiver out of Notre Dame. Seven catches, 110 yards, three touchdowns, and one rushing touchdown. So four total touchdowns for Chase Claypool. So if you need a wide receiver and he's there, go get him. Um, Gabe, this might be a silly question, but do you think Claypool has earned his job as Pittsburgh's number two now behind Juju? Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely the case right now. I think Deontay Johnson was on and off, um, but he hasn't pulled together a, a, a sequence of games that have been consistent. Ben Roethlisberger spreads the rock pretty well on that team, though. Uh, but Claypool coming out of college, I, I think a lot of scouts thought he was too slow. Uh, his his measurables were great in size, but in speed he was lacking. But, you know, when you are that big and we already know how little contact cornerbacks can make with, with receivers, Claypool is a dangerous guy to, to guard. Uh, his speed, I think, isn't as important as how tall and how good his hands are. He's a guy who I think he got drafted in the mid rounds. I don't even think it was the second round. I think it was. Was it? Geez, a lot of guys. Were. Yeah, Pittsburgh didn't have a pick until uh, round two. So I, I'm pretty sure that's when they took him. He was their first pick gotcha. of the draft. And then Pittsburgh also had a good steal taking Alex Highsmith in the draft as well. Edge rusher out of Charlotte, who a lot of teams were looking at. I thought the Steelers. So, sneakingly had a really good draft. Um, and then the Rams took care of business against Washington 30 to 10. 
uh, Darrell Henderson, two touchdowns. And then we look at Miami and San Francisco. This game really surprised many games. 43 points for the Dolphins, the most points they've scored in a game since 2015. Um, what's going on in San Francisco right now? Do you attribute this to the injuries, or are they in trouble? I think injuries are, is a big thing, but the Dolphins have improved. I think offensively, we saw what they did against Seattle. They put up a really good fight. They brought Seattle down to the wire. Uh, they're not a slouch anymore. And they have a good secondary. Jimmy G, though, I uh, did not expect him to play that badly. And that really hurt my fantasy team because I needed him to step up this week. And he had point or negative point nine two points. Um, I don't think it's time to hit the panic button if you're a San Francisco fan. But, yeah, no. but Jimmy G, I have never been big on Jimmy G. I'll be honest. I've never been big on him. I don't think he's as legit as people think he is. I agree. I think he's a little overhyped. Do I think he's in a, an NFL starter? Yes, I do. Um, considering what he did last year, uh, that can't go unnoticed. Um, although, I mean, Trent Dilfer did start a Super Bowl. I'm not comparing <laughs> G to Trent Dilfer, but I, I can't get over Trent Dilfer. That guy's that been haunting me in my sleep for the past 20 years. Um, but yeah, so I, I do think the Dolphins have put together a nice little young team. Brian Flores has done a fine job with those Dolphins, learned a lot from Belichick on how to build a team, and you're starting to see that. This is good competition for the AFC East. And if I'm San Francisco, I'm not pushing the panic button. You're right, but I am concerned with how good the division is this year. The Rams are 4-1, and one, Seattle's undefeated, and the Cardinals are 3-2. and two. So now you're looking at it, you're in last place. You're sitting there two and three. I mean, you're in last place. So that's uh, definitely I think, concerning. Do you think, I mean, they're in last in their division and they definitely won't win the division, but right. the Bears right now, I think, are their biggest competition to get into that wild card spot, that last wild card mm-hmm. spot, if we're being honest, or the Cardinals. You could argue the Cardinals and Bears right now. Um, because and then you have the Bucks in the mix as well, but I think the Bucks will end up taking a better seed than the than the Forty ers So, yeah. do you think the what do you think the wild card race will ultimately be if we could predict that right now? So, as I said earlier, as we were entering the start of the season, I think that the wild cards now. I think Minnesota is out of it. I don't, I don't want to say they're out out of it, but they're not in the mix right now. The three wild card teams are New Orleans, the Rams, and the Bears, right? And I think those are San Francisco's biggest competition right there. And of course, Arizona, that that's the four. Uh, you gotta throw Carolina in there too, because they're three and two, but I don't think they're going to last very long. Uh, just too young of a team, rookie head coach. The Cardinals, too. I, I don't think they're too big of a threat, but Chicago has surprised a lot of people this year, and I expect them to improve to 5-1 and one this week. They're showing shades of 2018 so far this year. They've been doing a fine job. I know it's uh, you know ticked you off a little bit as a Vikings fan, but the reality of the situation is that the Vikings still have to play the Bears twice. So those are going to be really fun games to watch, Gabe. Yeah, I'm not excited to play Chicago this year. I think they're they're going to expose us in our secondary. That's where we're lacking. I think Foles will have a great game. Uh, I could see a shootout. I could definitely see a shootout in that one. 
And then my upset for this week on the review and preview quick picks, I nailed it as the Browns did defeat the Indianapolis Colts 32 to 23. Just goes to show you how long it's been. The Browns are 4 and 0 for the first time since 1994. Not a single person on the review and preview staff was alive. Silence. <laughs> Just goes to show you how long it's been, Gabe. Uh, the defense, the coaching. I know it hurts, but Stefanski, man, is the real deal uh, for an NFL head coach. Look at the difference between him and Freddie Kitchens. And Baker Mayfield's not even playing too great right now. Neither is Jarvis Landry. They didn't have Nick Chubb, and they still put on a show, probably against the best offensive line in football and one of the top-tier defenses. Well, I think Kevin Stefanski has the perfect personnel for what this team is. And Freddie Kitchens had a background as a running backs coach, and he didn't use that running game as well as Kevin Stefanski has. And Kevin Stefanski has coached nearly every position uh, you can on the offensive side of the ball. I think he's one of the brightest young minds in the NFL, and I'm so I'm so happy for him. I liked him a lot, and I miss him a lot because Gary Kubiak, I think, doesn't have the same energy and the uh, and like just being on the field. The presence on the field is something that bothers me with Kubiak. How he's in the press box. I always appreciated Stefanski uh, being on the field, so I miss him a lot. So thanks for rubbing that one in. <laughs> Considering that Stefanski took over for Pat Shermer after he left for the Giants, and he was another great offensive coordinator for you guys. So you went from Shermer to Stefanski to Kubiak. So and and uh, Shermer was the head coach of the Browns at one point, which is also funny. Yeah, <laughs> earlier this this uh, past decade, and then speaking of Minnesota, we move on to their loss to Seattle on Sunday Night Football, twenty seven to twenty six. The Seahawks are 5-0 and for the first time in franchise history. And I know we talked about this on your show last night, the North Pole, but I'm an old-school type of person, Gabe, that just loves to take points when they're available. And I can see the argument to both sides to either kick the field goal or go for it on fourth down. And you're right. The Vikings were converting third and short, fourth and short majority of that game but I would have kicked the field goal just to put more pressure on Seattle. I know Zimmer, it seemed like he just wanted to go for the knockout punch there. But again, take us through that play and why you think they made the right choice by passing on the field goal. Well, at the time of the, uh, of, of the play, it was pouring out. It was absolute. I think the rain at that point was coming down as hard as it had been the entire game. And kicking a field goal in that kind of rain is a minor risk. I don't think that's a decent enough argument to say they should just go for it because what if they mess up the snap? Um, I just think that our momentum was going so well on that drive. We had I, – I can argue – I can criticize our offensive line all I want, but when it comes to run blocking, Drew Samia, Dakota Dozier, Garrett Bradbury, uh, and Dan uh, – Brian O'Neill on the right side. And even the last year, it was all on the right side that we got our rushing. But this this uh, game, it was all on the left side. And you heard Chris Collinsworth talk about that in the broadcast. I would have liked to see that run play go to the left side and get away from the right side because that is Drew Samia's side. And right. um, 
that defensive setup, they probably should have called a timeout uh, unless they were coming. I think they actually might have been coming out of a timeout. Yeah. Or it might have been Seattle coming out of a timeout. But they should have changed the play. When you see how many guys were in the box on that play and how pinched their defensive line was, uh, a play up a gut right there I don't think was the wisest call. And, yeah, Russell Wilson was going to go down the field, in my opinion, either way. I think we made it harder for him by making him have to go 94 yards rather than 75 yards if we kick the field goal and get a touchback. So I think we gave him the hardest scenario to beat us, and he still did it. And that's just a credit to Russell Wilson. No disrespect to Mike Zimmer. Russell Wilson just did the impossible. Right. If I was coach, I would have taken the points, but Zimmer did seem to make a gutsy call. And, you know, if you if you hit it, you look like a genius. If you don't, then you're open to all these questions and critique and comments the next day as the social media world just decided to blow up on him a, a little too much. But um, actually, I have one more question for you on Minnesota. How excited are you for Pat Elfline to come back from injury? Yeah, he's got to come back soon. Um, I don't. Did you? Do you think he's coming back this week? Did you read something that he is? Uh, no, I haven't. I read don't think he is. I think he's coming off of IR any any week now. He's the problem is is he's he's so injury prone. So even if he does come back, there's no telling if he's going to stay healthy. He's he's battled so many injuries in his career. Drew Samia, I almost hope I, – I would never hope somebody gets hurt. But if Drew Samia twisted his ankle in a pile up, would it be the worst thing in the world? Oh, if we? Because you know what? We're at a point in the season now where we have nothing to lose. Bring yeah. in Ezra Cleveland. Yeah, you're right. Um, moving on to Monday Night Football uh, two nights ago, this game got me very, very frustrated and angry um, as the Chargers could not – put the nail in the coffin as Mike Badgley decided to miss a 50-yard field goal and doink it up the upright, and that's the difference from a win and a loss for me in fantasy football this 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 week. And it just it gets me really, really mad because I was up by six against James. Badgley's kicking the field goal. I'm like, he's not going to hit this. With the way my night's going, he's not going to hit it. And then, of course, like the third play of overtime, James has Breeze and Kamara, need I remind you. And then – he throws a 40-yard pass to Kamara down the right sideline. I'm like, oh, there we go. Um, I was holding my teeth on that last drive of the game, and then Taysom Hill ran it in for a touchdown. I was like, oh, thank you. And then Badgley, man, that's the difference between a win and a loss for me. It's tough to come by in this league because everyone is so anal about every little uh, waiver acquisition and everything. Yeah. Is this the same league that I'm in with you? No, no. Uh, James is in a different league with me. James was in that league last year, but uh, I think he only wanted to do one league this year, and he chose ours because it's for more money. But Jeez. That, that's that's tough. That's tough. And it's not even in the Superdome. Like, it's in the Superdome in, in New Orleans, but not even with fans. Imagine, imagine that. You get a perfect chance to kick a field goal with no fans yelling at you and can't say can do it. Do you, are, are you concerned about the saints? Because right now it just seems like breeze finally got on track in this game a little bit. And worse enough, Michael Thomas just got fined $59,000 today for a fight with a teammate in practice. But um, 
How, how concerned are you with New Orleans? Do you think they're downgraded to a wild card team or are they downgraded to something worse right now? I'm, I'm extremely concerned about Drew Brees and his inability to, you know, throw the ball down the field in, in a league where you got to be able to throw the ball down the field. Um, it's, it's really easy to defend a team when you don't have to guard anybody past 15 yards. So it, it, it really shrinks the field for them. And their whole strategy offensively is just getting Kamara the ball and letting him break tackles. Once you get to the playoffs, guys, the defenses can tackle well. You're not going to have that kind of luck. I really like Emmanuel Sanders. I think that was a, an underrated acquisition. Um, he's still going strong. He's so old and and. You would think he'd be washed up, but he still got it. That's great. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really worried about their defense. And I've always been. I think the Saints have always had a kind of troublesome defense, but their offense has always picked up the slack. But uh, this year, it just looks like their offense isn't going to do enough to get them to the promised land. And I do agree with you, Tom. I think I think they're a wild card team at best right now. And it's crazy. Even with Sanders, it took a couple of weeks for them to develop chemistry on the field because they had to upgrade him to the number one receiver when Thomas was out. And now they may have to do that again with Thomas getting fined. They they may suspend him the league. So I don't know what's going to happen. He's also there. on my fantasy team too. Uh, yeah. And I thought he was going to miss the game because of an injury. And when they said the the game he's missing isn't injury related, it has to do with an altercation with a teammate. Yep. I was like, Jesus, Michael Thomas. I, I don't like – I'll be honest. I'm not a big fan of him. He trashed – his Twitter trash talk is so ridiculous. And yeah. I found out he wears size 13s. He's got small feet. Um, he, he's got the same size feet as his head coach, Sean Payton. And that just made me you know, respect him even less. Oh, God. Um, Buffalo and Tennessee, that was a – really lopsided game the titans just came out and shocked the world i feel like majority of people picked buffalo to win this game titans are 4-0 for the second time in team history last time they did that was 2008 when kerry collins was their quarterback former giant panther and saint uh you know i love watching the titans play because this is not a modern day football team this is like uh, early 2000s, late 90s team playing in 2020. I just love watching them. Yeah, they they put up a ton of points in the ground and pound. That's the beauty of it. They're yeah. a high-scoring running offense, which is rare to come by um, in, the, in the NFL. Derrick Henry is probably playing his best football of his career right now. That stiff arm he had on, on Josh Norman was unreal. He just tossed him. Um, And they have weapons outside of him. Uh, Jonu Smith at tight end, they didn't have him last year. Or if they did, he wasn't really a factor much. Or I don't remember him being much of a factor. But he's really come out of nowhere uh, with two touchdowns in this game. Uh, He really, really helped me in my fantasy game. I went into the game projected to lose by 10 because – my opponent had Derrick Henry and all, and Jonu Smith carried me to the win in that one. Is this uh, our, but uh, our league? Different league, actually. Different league. And, um, yeah, I, I think 
Then you have AJ Brown, great receiver. Um, and then Raymond, their other wideout is Khalif he, Raymond. He exposed, yeah, he exposed uh, the Vikings in their matchup. Steven Goskowski's having a great season. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to like about this Tennessee Titans team right now. By the way, Khalif Raymond, former Giant. Interesting fact. Really? Uh, yeah, he was our kick returner for a little bit, and then we got rid of him because we didn't view him much as a receiving threat. But anyway, let's get to these Week 5 quick picks. We're only going to go over Week 5 tonight. Uh, due to the Tuesday game, we pushed back our deadline to submit Week 6 quick picks. Make sure to get those in. Review and preview staff members by Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So here we go. I'm going to share my screen, and we'll hit. We'll get the show rolling here. All right, so... Gabe, uh, unfortunately, you were the week five loser uh, after having a one-week sabbatical. (laughs) You and James failed to hit your lock, and this was just a week where, you know, it was rough. Chicago on the road on a Thursday night, I wouldn't have picked them as my lock. I think you made the right decision by picking them as your upset. It was just very shocking because when I saw that, James picked them as a lock. You picked them as an upset. I'm like, oh, gosh, one person's about to get screwed royally. And it happened to be James and not you. So I think that got James a little bit nervous. So I thought you made a good pick there. But then uh, Kansas City not coming through against the Raiders. I tend to not pick divisional games as my lock. Um only That's a good rule of thumb. They're I, always I so close, and the teams are very familiar with each other. They study film on each other a lot more. Uh, yeah, you were the only one to pick the Bears, so kudos to you. And then I think it's biased. I think I'm slowly <laughs> becoming like I'm growing hair in my arms like a werewolf. I'm I'm becoming a yes. Bear fan for some reason, and I think it's because uh, I need to to root for somebody that isn't the Packers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's true, but uh, as a, it's crazy coming from a Vikings fan saying that. But uh, anyway, Panthers, Falcons, we split. You and I thought the Falcons would finally get a win. That did not happen, unfortunately. Uh, the Ravens, clean sweep. Jacksonville, you were the odd man out on that one. Um, crazy because I believe Jacksonville has lost three straight games to winless teams. And Kansas City, we all missed that. Shocking. That was the biggest shocker of the week, in my opinion. And now we move over a little bit. New England did not play. Arizona and Pittsburgh, we all got sweeped. And then then, uh, Buffalo, we got whipped on that one. That turned out to be our worst pick of the week. Um, You know what? I was really considering picking Tennessee as an upset, but when the COVID cases continued to plummet, I just, I kind of used that as a dictation as far as who I would pick for that game. But we all really struggled on that one. And then the Rams sweep 49ers. We all missed again. That How many did we have? We had one, two, we had three games where all four of us missed this week. We, we have like to find terrible. a terrible. Yeah. We got to find a way to like, make the picks different. We have a lot of same picks in it. It ends up making the, 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 the weeks does decided by like two games. And it always happens to be me because I feel like, I mean, I'm the most aggressive or maybe the most stupid with my picks, but I just like to be aggressive and pick upsets at, at some moments. 
Um, but ultimately I'm wrong because there's not a ton of money line upsets in the NFL. It's usually just, you know, if there is an upset, it'll be with the spread, if anything. Right. And then we look at the Browns. Me and Kyle take that. Dallas, uh, James went with his Giants. Loyal fan. Love to see it. And then the Seahawks and Saints. And then here are the point totals through week five. You're still in there. You're only two points out of third. James is ahead right now with 64 points. And we'll uh, show the points ticker there below as I'll stop sharing my screen since, since it's easier to see. And then in week six, Gabe, we have some crazy games. But before we get there... My week five takeaways of the week are there are five unbeatens remaining, and it's crazy. Carolina winning was my one of my two top upsets of the week. Had not beaten Atlanta on the road since 2014, and then, of course, Vegas over the Chiefs, and then Chase Claypool emerging as that number two wide receiver in Pittsburgh. So that's my take there. Now we move on to – Week six, some key games for this week. Quickly, Gabe, the Bears at the Panthers. That should be really fun to watch. We have the Ravens at the Eagles, the Browns at the Steelers. A lot of divisional games. And we have the, the Packers at the Bucks. Oh, my gosh. Like, I don't even know who to pick in that one because Brady's normally very good off a loss. But we got to remember something. Brady's playing with different teammates now, you know, and the Packers are riding high. But they are coming off a bye. What do you expect in this game? I think you're going to see a similar outcome for Tom Brady in this one. Uh, He's going to give it his all. But ultimately, his offensive line, they struggled against Khalil Mack uh, in that Thursday night game. Expect Zadarius Smith to give right tackle Tristan Wirfs an incredibly hard time. Zadarius Smith has had games with uh, multi-sacks. I think this is going to be another game where he he gets his hands on Tom Brady multiple times. And Jair Alexander's the best corner in football right now, according to PFF. Expect him to lock down Mike Evans, who's been really hobbled. Mike Evans got relatively held down in check by Jalen Johnson, a rookie, in that Thursday night game. I don't expect Tom Brady to find a lot of success in the pass game. If he's going to get success, it's going to have to come – Uh, off of play action and Ronald Jones is going to be that X factor for Tampa Bay uh, this this Sunday. Yeah, no, those were a lot of good points. I was leaning towards the Bucks actually to win, but now that I think more about it, I may go to the Packers because, uh, well, not just because of what you said, but again, I was very undecided about that game, but I'm going to really wait until the deadline to pick that one. Uh, And then the Rams at the 49ers, good divisional matchup. We'll see if the 49ers can get back on track. And then the Chiefs at the Bills, two four-and-one teams. Uh, Which team is going to lose two in a row? That's going to be really fun to watch. And I think the Chiefs are actually favored on the road against Buffalo, which should be very interesting. Um, I think – Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, Tom. Uh, I just want to – give my two cents on that Buffalo game. I think, I think Josh Allen's going to have a great game. I think if Derek Carr, we saw what Derek Carr did. I think Stefan Diggs is going to be a lot of fun to watch in that game. I have Buffalo winning that game personally. Ooh, okay. I like it. I like it. Um, it's hard for me to see Pat Mahomes losing two in a row when he's hundred percent healthy. That's just my take on that, but you're right. Buffalo at home coming off a tough loss. I think, 
they'll be ready for this one. So it should be a close one. Uh, Denver will be without running back Melvin Gordon, who is serving a three-game suspension after a DUI charge, meaning Philip Lindsay will be the starter for the next three weeks, including this upcoming week six game against the New England Patriots. Got to love it. And Gabe, finally, our last block of the show. I can't wait to talk about this. Um, I'm going to share my screen, and we have the two rookie quarterbacks, Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert. Uh, So a little discussion here, Gabe. We look at all these stats and the accolades that I have listed down. Who's been better? That's a very good question, Tom. I think Justin Herbert has looked better. I think if we look at their ratings, you would say they're identical because they they look so similar this season. Um, Herbert's probably working with a better supporting cast on offense. Um, Eckler's injury was significant at the time, but then you see what he did against the Saints, four touchdowns uh, and no interceptions without Eckler, who's an amazing receiving threat. I think Justin Herbert has all of the tools to be an amazing NFL quarterback, not to say Joe Burrow doesn't, but right now, Justin Herbert looks like he's physically just meant to be out there on the field. He has a cannon of an arm. I love watching Herbert play, and he's he makes very quick decisions as well. And he's got a very quick release, too. That's what I like. I think Joe Burrow hangs on to the ball a lot longer than Justin Herbert does, and that's a mental thing more than anything. A good look inside there into the uh, film with Gabe Flayton and uh, as we like to call them, the young guns, Burrow and Herbert. So we'll just go over some of Herbert's stats. He was the sixth overall pick in this year's draft, six feet, six, 236 pound build so far through four games, nine touchdowns, three picks, 1200 yards, a one Oh seven rating. And he's completed nearly 69% of his passes. Although he is Oh, and four in four games started Great season campaign in Oregon. PFF has him ranked 16th in both offense and passing. And fun fact, he was actually the first rookie to throw four touchdowns on Monday Night Football against the Saints. And Gabe, I got to tell you, I agree. I think Herbert's been better through five weeks, although he's only appeared in four games. Uh, Remember something, almost beat the Chiefs, almost beat the Saints. I know almost won't cut it in this league. But as a rookie, that's pretty darn impressive. Your first four starts, you took Pat Mahomes and Drew Brees down to the wire. Herbert's here to stay. He is a long-term quarterback in this league. Could not agree with you more on that. And I, I love Justin Herbert's personality, too. He's he's so humble. I think he's so – it's hard not to like him. I, I, I think Justin Herbert's really the, my, one of my favorite rookies to watch right now. I just think his, his ceiling is sky high. And that Chargers team – uh, finally, you know, got their their quarterback. It didn't actually. It didn't take it that long. Um, but well, I still think Joe Burrow. His numbers, I think we could say, don't tell the whole story. So I think we have to still sit back and and see more of Joe Burrow. I think AJ Green is trash. I think he has <laughs> a, a very inconsistent running game, which doesn't help him. And I don't really like their offensive play calling a ton. I think Joe Burrow needs some more help, uh, and that's usually the case. It's never the guy who gets drafted first that all of a sudden looks the best because they go to the worst team. 
And I think Justin Herbert just went to a better team. So let me tell you this. I was hearing about Justin Herbert fall 2018. Oh, the Giants got to draft him before they draft the Jones. And they're like, they, they kind of want to not move on from Eli, but they want to get somebody in the quarterback room besides him. So they're like, oh, we got to draft Justin Herbert. He would be great. You know, sixth pick, got to get him, this and that. And then they take Daniel Jones. But I look, I think Justin Herbert is better than Joe Burrow, flat out. Uh, I think Joe Burrow's a winner, but so is Herbert. These two are going to be here for a while. Uh, remember something, Herbert playing in the Pac-12, the competition isn't as insane as it is in the SEC, the, comp- uh, the conference that Joe Burrow played in. But Herbert almost came out after 2018. And the fact that he stayed, I think, helped him even more. But uh, let's look at Joe Burrow's stats here. First overall pick, 6'4", 216, 1,300 yards through five games, six touchdowns, three picks. His rating is much lower than Herbert's, only at 86, and his completion percentage is a little lower. Uh, I know the Chargers have a couple of more weapons than the Bengals do, since Cincinnati doesn't really have a tight end. As we're, L.A. has a pretty reliable one in Hunter Henry. Burrow, though, is 1-3-1 and one through five starts. So he's gotten the Bengals a win and a tie against Philadelphia, which is pretty impressive, through five games. 60 touchdowns last year at LSU, which is monumental as a senior. And then he is ranked 18th in offense and 15th in passing, according to PFF. And as our uh, fun fact there at the bottom, he is the first rookie to throw for 300-plus yards in three straight games, which doesn't mean much if you can't put wins on the board. But against a very tough AFC North, I think Burrow has done a really great job so far. I know we're picking Herbert, but... It's more due to the individual standpoint. I think Burrow has had a little more success thus far than Herbert has, in my opinion. But if we're looking at individual accolades, I think Herbert's done a little better. Yeah, and if we could compare, you know, a guy like Justin Herbert, who do you think you would compare him to uh, if we could say, who is his NFL prototype? Because I think he kind of sets himself apart from a lot of guys. There's not a lot of guys like him. So are we talking currently? Yeah, I would say anybody. I mean, it could be current. It could be it could be past. So, again, like I said, I haven't gotten to watch much of him since he's been yeah. in the NFL. But um, he kind of gives me – I don't know why I'm about to say this, but, like, this is going to sound really weird. Kind of like a mix of Carson Palmer and Deshaun Watson. <laughs> a very awkward combo for me, but I know Palmer retired. But uh, I think Burrow, he's quick, but he's not a runner. I just think he gets rid of the ball quick, which is something Watson does as well. You could even right. compare, according to getting out the ball quick, Brady does that. So, you know, it's hard because he's not really like a lot of guys in the NFL. Yeah, it's it's hard really because know. you don't see – there's a lot of baseball-type quarterbacks who have quick releases like Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson. Uh, yeah. But but Justin Herbert's a six six guy that you won't see him in an infield on a baseball yeah. field. So it's it's crazy. I think he's a lot like a Matt Stafford in a way, uh, hmm. with with his arm and his po- pocket presence. Yeah, uh, and maybe got some Big Ben in there as well. But he's way more mobile than Big Ben and skinnier too. It's just a crazy. He's a crazy good talent, and I'm shocked that uh, he was not. You know how there's people saying that it was a bad pick to take him in the sixth overall uh, pick. Right. 
Well, the Chargers needed a quarterback, and he was the best one on the board because Tua and Burrow were both gone. But it's funny you bring up Matt Stafford, Gabe, because I kind of think Burrow is like Matt Stafford in a lot of ways because they both got drafted to bad franchises, and you know they're both putting up numbers, and they're both doing you know a good amount of losing so far. <laughs> so not, Stafford's been doing they're that for ten plus SEC. years. Yep, Georgia yeah. and LSU. A lot of good points brought up there. So Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, the young guns. Uh, feel free to comment after the show if you watch this um, later tonight and give us a comment if who you think has done better. I know it's late, so we're going to get off here in just a minute. But, Gabe, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Um, great stuff on the North Pole. And we'll have James and Kyle back next week. And remember, folks, tune in. To Big Blue Avenue tomorrow night, myself and Hank and Dictor will talk all things New York football giants and take a closer look into Big Blue through five weeks. Gabe, again, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Uh, this, it was an awesome show, and I uh, look forward to, to doing the North Pole again next week on Tuesday. On behalf of Gabe Flayton, I'm your host, Tom Scavetta, saying so long. Thank you all for watching Review and Preview here on Facebook Live. Good night, everybody.